On this week's episode of the Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I interview Captain Jack and then proceed to have a civilized conversation about the coronavirus, which is then aired after that, we'll air the non-civilized first conversation that we had where Rufus and I both re-listened to see how much it sounded like we hated each other. So if you want a lot of content right now, Captain Jack, good. The discussion after that we have that civilized is pretty good. And the decision, the discussion after, if you want to really listen to the two of us going at each other and yelling at each other, it's there. It's sort of like a uncut kind of a director's cut edition of Bet the Process. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for pics, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage and sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom Welcome to the second, I guess the second post coronavirus podcast the episode of the bet the process podcast um where patient zero rufus peabody is my co-host and we're joined by captain jack which is really cool to be joined by him and what we'd like to talk to you a little bit about is sort of like what what you've been seeing so far in in, in the industry obviously everything's kind of shut down and you know what i mean I, i guess people are trying to do these like really small market bets but i can't imagine those are even worth the time that people are spending on them i mean so i guess what's the first question is like what's your general observation so far um in terms of how sports books are coping with this and what you're seeing uh well yeah thanks for having me back guys i appreciate this uh it's a pleasure to be here you know what we've seen is a lot of these sports books just seem to be trying to squeak by with whatever scraps they can find to offer for betting and you know, I have a lot of sources inside sports books that reach out to me and you know, maybe slip me some information. And, uh, you know, what we saw first was an incredible amount of layoffs or furloughs uh, in the industry. Uh, just about all in of the... In terms of who, who, what type of people are they furloughing? Like, you know, the, the general like operators or... And I guess it's probably helpful to, to maybe even, you know, bucket these into two types of sports books, right? One would be offshore, unregulated, and the other would be, you know, regulated, legal, whatever. Yeah. And I'm more talking about the regulated uh, space. Uh, That's where basically all my contacts are these days. Everyone from the retail clerks to the data analysts to the traders, uh, you know, it's been pretty much across the board. Uh, I know William Hill was about 70% of their staff was furloughed or uh, furloughed. We'll use the word for William Hill because there is an intention to Hire them back later, but they're but also the one. Book. They're also the, they're also the sports book that has the most physical locations, right? So they probably have the True. most most personnel. They're the most personnel intensive. True, uh, absolutely. Uh, but we've also seen it with some of the online sports books. I know some of my contacts here in New Jersey uh, have you know either been let go or uh, furloughed, and you know so now they're operating with these skeleton staffs, uh, with the exception of Bet Three Sixty Five who uh, they promised all of their staff that their, uh, their job is secure through at least August, which was an impressive uh, step for them. But they're operating with the skeleton staffs and they're putting together these sports that are, you know, we've, we've seen it all. It's Belarusian hockey and uh, 
lawn bowling. Uh, in New Jersey, the DGE uh, updated their list of sports that you could legally make markets on, and the list is almost comical. It's everything from, um, you know, like I said, the, the hockey push playoffs up in Belarus, push up snooker. What was that? Push-up contest? No? We'll get there, Jeff. We'll get Not there. Not yet. Oh, wait. Yeah, but Captain Jack, wasn't there um, – I, I know there was some sort of controversy regarding live ping pong or table tennis. Sorry, right. i got to call it table tennis. Right. So uh, they offered these uh, you know, table tennis in Russia and the Ukraine as a viable option. Uh, and then one of the sportsbook operators, uh, I won't say which ones, but they use predominantly green in their coloring scheme, uh, offered an in-game wager on – the table tennis, but that wasn't permitted yet. So now normally the DGE would come down pretty hard on a company like that and say, you know, oh, you're, you're outstepping your bounds. Uh, instead, the DGE then made a motion to permit in-game wagering on table tennis. They're, they're as desperate as everybody else is to get markets up. Is it, you think this is good or bad uh, long-term for the industry in terms of innovation? Uh, you know, I'm not sure we're going to see any innovation come out of this. It's not like we're, we're changing the dynamic on how sports betting is done. We're just getting more desperate as to what sports we're willing to book. Um, and I, you know, I don't think it's really great for the players. Uh, you know, I mean, there are some consumers out there that are saying, oh, yeah, I can beat these markets. Um, but, you know, all the limits are low. You're really not. This isn't anything for the long term gain for anyone. So how, how, much money, how much money are these books losing right now? And I guess, are any books in a better position? I mean, it's bad for everybody, but are there competitive, like, are there competitive, competitive advantages for, for some books? Like, are we going to have um, some bankruptcies and books get acquired and basically, you know, books that are in a better position to withstand this can get more market share when sports comes back? Are we going to see anything like that, do you think? Well, let me take the first part of your, your question first is, uh, are we seeing uh, any books that are going to you know, do better with not taking wagers? Well, technically, yes. I mean, there are certain sports books that have been losing money month after month, and you know, they're losing money because they're, they're doing marketing spend. So they can reduce their marketing spend, they can reduce their promotional spend. Uh, and yes, they're, they're probably not losing as much money now. So some of those sports books, and I mean, the names are pretty obvious, uh, you know, the large U.S. players like DraftKings and FanDuel, uh, you know, they're not, they're not losing anything. So they're probably coming out a little bit better. In fact, if they're cutting staff, then they have less overhead uh, charge as well. Now, some of the smaller players, uh, you have to think, the smaller sportsbook operators, you have to think are uh, not in a great position here because uh, they're not getting any more brand recognition. Uh, they are... Um, they're not obtaining new players. You know, there's not a, a push for uh, new markets at this point. Uh, it looks like Colorado is still going to open on May 1st, but I can't imagine that that's a great idea. Um, at least maybe there'll be some brand recognition going on in Colorado, you know, before we get sports back running. But the, the main part is, is we're going to see some contraction in this industry. I mean, you know, if all of the the doom and gloom that we've seen, if, if it's all as bad as they say, and we're going to see about a 15 to 20% reduction in the size of the industry uh, on the, like the casino and tourism side, then sportsbooks are going to be like that. And, you know, the thing is, these, these sportsbooks aren't in line for a bailout the way that the casinos are. 
And a lot of these sports books operate independent of casinos. So it might be a tough time. I think uh, we're probably going to see some contraction in the form of merger and acquisition. We're going to see some of the deeper pocket companies be able to swallow up some of the uh, you know, other operators that weren't operating with such a high margin. Um, it, it's going to be a, a period of contraction, unfortunately. Isn't isn't a natural thing to think about that this is going to push people more towards mobile, where you know the the sort of brick and mortar, just as we mentioned, you know William Hill, they're they're going to struggle, as as they should, right? Like in some respects, like there's no reason in this world, like this is just like one of the COVID sort of things, is people realize like, oh, we don't actually need to see each other face to face to do half of our business, and we can be much more efficient. So maybe this is a good way to push the industry towards, you know, more mobile. And maybe that's just an optimistic way of thinking about it. Um, but ultimately, like the people like William Hill are the ones that are going to suffer the most. And then sort of, you know, but struggle, I think, struggle to get back to where they were from a retail standpoint. I mean, right? William, Hill, William Hill has mobile, though. I mean, they have mobile in, in the states that have mobile. I mean, is there, Jack, is their mobile product so much worse? They, they, listen, listen, oh. Rufus. They've invested a lot of money in physical locations. Their, their big thing are retail books, right? And if you think about the business like disappearing, if reducing, it's going to be phys- physically people going into that. So who will be impacted the most? I'm not saying they don't have mobile, right? I'm just saying that hopefully this could be a good thing for the industry because people are going to realize that having retail shops is, is fragile and stupid. So I, I agree. I agree completely, Jeff. And here's the thing. I don't think we're going to see another state now that comes in without a mobile component. Um, you know, look, we just saw Washington pass a law for I, some I'm reason. Gonna, I'm going to bet you that's not true because, because regulators, these regulators come from this deeply, you know, this deep way of regulating physical locations. And like when I did that panel at CES, one of the things that Matt King said that was good was, you know, these guys have never regulated an online product before. So they're going to naturally go to what they, what they know. And I do, I, I, I hope you're right. And I hope I'm wrong, but I, I don't, I think, I don't think that the world is smart enough to change that quickly. But we've, we, Jeff, we've already had, and, and Jeff, we've already had New Jersey come in and they allow mobile deposits, you know, mobile registration. Um, I think, is there any state that's more mobile friendly than New Jersey right now? I mean, they were, and, also, the, they were also the first state, Rufus, and a lot of people that have followed them have not taken their, their, their you know, model. So no, would- it's true. But you're saying that regulators don't know how to regulate mobile and they can, you they know, don't. The, the, but but there is like, there is a state that is not, doing not, it. These regulators were not hired to regulate mobile sports books, right? They were hired to regulate physical casinos on Indian reservations, some of them, and riverboats. Like that's a totally different thing to regulate, and that's why you see some of the antiquated regulations that are out there. Right. I just I mean I think that there's enough money in it that you know they can teach the regulators. I mean, it's, you're so naive about some of these things. Like it, of the world, the rest of the world is like, there's, there's like probably like 10 people in the world as smart as you. So no one thinks that way, right? People are dumb generally and don't think about the most practical, the best solution. They think about the solution that they understand that makes sense to them or that can make them the most money in an antiquated business model. I mean, I do believe everybody's in it for their self-interest, so... You know, that's a good point. And you don't have to look any further than Washington, D.C., 
in their sports betting law to see that because what are they going to do? They're going to have that lousy mobile product from Intralot. We all know it's going to suck. But the second thing is, since they got the the sports stadiums involved, you know, Ted Leonosis is going to open up. Sorry, yeah, with uh, William Hill at the uh, Capital One Arena down there, and it's going to be like the world's largest sports book. It's going to be some ridiculous, you know, twenty thousand square foot space for a sports book but it's going to be physical only or just mobile within the arena itself. So, uh, yeah, you're right. That's going to be something that it's going to be a genius bar too. You heard that, right? Oh, really? They're going to have like Zach Leons is his big thing. It's he's, you know, Ted's son and basically like a scary spitting image of Ted. Um, he talks about this idea that they're going to have like a genius bar type thing there where they're going to have people walking around teaching you how to bet and making it more approachable. Um, Wait, wait. It doesn't really scale, unfortunately. I, I want to hit on this, though. So, Jeff, you say that the reason that we're not seeing more mobile and the reason that basically these states are passing um, legislation that is not consumer-friendly, and honestly, it's probably not, it doesn't maximize their profits, is because they, you know, is because they don't understand how to regulate mobile. No, it's two, it's two things. And, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's not that they... That, the, the them not understanding is a, is a different thing. The reason that we're not seeing full mobile is because the lobbying power of the existing casino gaming operators well, that's, who want you to come into their physical location, who want to protect gaming to be within their walls. And okay, now we're getting into the good stuff. That that's yeah. That's not. I mean, that's that's that should be obvious to anyone that's that follows this at all, right? Now the reason, right, that that we see really weird regulations often is because they don't, even when given the opportunity to go after mobile or go after online, they don't understand how to regulate that. So the perfect example of this is in New Jersey, right? If you have a a server that is doing gaming, it has to be physically in a casino, like in the basement of a casino, right? Like it it has to be in sort of this regulated. What's that? It has to be within Atlantic City, not and within. Uh, so, so Jack knows this obviously a thousand times better than Wait, I. Jack, do. it's within that, a casino in Atlantic City or just in Atlantic City? Within Atlantic City. In fact, one of the largest uh, data centers on the East Coast is now in Atlantic City, uh, out towards the Bay Area near the. Is that like Continent Eight or something that's doing that? Uh, yes. Okay. So, so we Jack, wait, wait. So it's, it doesn't actually have to be in a physical casino, though. I. Uh, Correct. And okay. they actually actually added some verbiage where you can have your disaster recovery center be uh, off, you know, inland, because obviously Atlantic City is still right on the coast. That's really dumb to put data centers right. But, on the but Con and Aid is essentially, Con and Aid essentially created, so Con and Aid is this like, like really strong company that has done this in, in all sorts of regions outside of the U.S. and now is entering the U.S. market and highly regulated their data centers. So my guess is that is that's a situation that's evolved where they were like, well, instead of saying it's got to be in a casino, let's create a dedicated data center for sports books. That's, that's regulated license that we can control and that we feel comfortable with. That was almost like a compromise where a third party vendor came in and could solve something in a way that casinos or sports book operators had no interest in trying to solve for that would make the regulators happy. But again, we're talking about New Jersey. And if anyone's ever talked to New Jersey regulators, these guys are progressive. They are thinking about this differently than a lot of the other states. I'm more talking about like the Indianas or the, 
you know, the Michigans or the, and I'm not saying, I mean, those, those are two examples of states that are trying to do it well. But the point is that there is a lot of learning curve for these regulators around what they need to do from a mobile and online standpoint versus what a physical casino looks like. Jeff, I agree with your point. Uh, and, you know, something to be had here is New Jersey had mobile gaming in 2013. They've had online casinos since 2013. So they have this familiarity with the mobile gaming component. Uh, and a lot of other states, you know, we still only have three states now that have uh, mobile uh, internet casinos. So there's still a learning curve there. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but some of these other states have to kind of get with the program. And I think something like this COVID-19 pandemic is going to be the kind of impetus to say, you know what, maybe we need to bake in the mobile component here right from the start and learn how to do this. But okay, you so think that, but we're, we're still going to have the parties with vested interests in brick and mortar lobbying hard. Do you think that's, I mean, it, you think we're still going to see these changes though? Well, you know, maybe one of the things that can happen is those, those guys will realize how fragile their, their physical business is. And so they're going to be like, we need a mobile component to our business in case something like this ever happens again, so that we don't rely on people, you know, clustering in small areas. Right. So maybe may, the, the only way that that changes is if that comes from them, I think. What do you think? I, no, I, I agree. I mean, Washington State is a good example. You know, they just passed this lousy law that says you can only do uh, sports betting in a tribal casino. You can do mobile if you're within the tribal casino. It's basically that Mississippi type law. Uh, and it's really, really short sighted. And the whole reason it came about is because of heavy lobbying by the tribes to Washington State Legislature. And, you know, so I, I, I agree with both of you. I think there's definitely a need for change. This is the impetus that could create change, but we're still going to have to fight some really short-sighted uh, lobbying dollars that are going to, you know, try to prevent this because of some antiquated thought process that, you know, uh, sports betting is some kind of loss leader to get people in the door into your casino. And can I say, this is how the interests of American Betters Coalition can actually be aligned with some of these operators. Okay, can we, can we move back to one thing that we were talking about before, which is whether this can spur some interesting innovation. And one of the things that we were, you know, talking about or focused on was this idea that they're creating like these bets around shitty edge case or niche type sports. Um, what if, you know, you guys have seen the news on, on Tiger and, and Phil, um, potentially with Peyton and, you know, Brady and whatnot. But let's just take that one step further and just look at the macro meaning of that, not necessarily the exact specific. The league, current league structure, right, and how clunky it is and how hard it is to just get something going that's interesting to bet on is a real problem, right? Like the NBA, if they want to restart, think about everything they need to do to restart. And by the way, this whole idea that they should do it in Vegas is probably one of the dumbest things I've ever heard because if you want to try to create a contained environment where you control your players, Vegas is probably the worst place to do it. You take them to somewhere like Taiwan where you can just control them, where it's completely safe, where you can create a whole bubble and it doesn't matter. Vegas would be the worst place in the world. So hopefully that's not really what they're thinking about. But if you take it, like, let's say right now, instead, instead of this, we, we hire, you know, we do a virtual three-point shooting contest between, you know, James Harden and Steph Curry where each of them has an iPhone that's broadcasting them doing it on their practice court and they compete against each other. 
um, you know, I've heard that you could get something like that regulated and legal to bet on in four states within a week. Um, isn't that the type of thing we should be thinking about? Like, how do we do star-driven competitions that we can bet on that are interesting, that are short in format? Oh, I, I definitely agree with that, Jeff. I think there's definitely room for content that's a little bit more American-friendly in terms of the competition than what we're seeing right now. The trouble is, you know, you, you need to drive, you need to make this financially uh, attractive to the athletes themselves. And that's a question of, you know, where we're going to be at this point. You know, if the NBA ends up uh, withholding 25% of player salaries, they're going to be more motivated to be doing things like this, uh, possibly for profit. But it's, it's a no-brainer right now because if you think about it, the, the actual attention that you can get has never been, you're never going to be able to drive this much attention so easily to something. And you sponsors are dying to put money into something right now that isn't like reruns of Family Guy at 11 o'clock. And, you know, there's a huge opportunity to look at this stuff. And, and that's where I think the innovation should happen. You know, the, the, the Action Network um, did what I consider to be a really fun thing, which is this idea of a King of the Hill 64 team one-on-one sim thing on, on uh, 2K and, you know, even, even what ESPN's trying to do with the sort of getting these players to play against each other, those are, those are at least moving in the right direction. Um, but I, I just feel like this is such a big opportunity that, that someone needs to seize it. And it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of sad that no one is. And I also feel like we're, we're continually hoping that, oh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have sports again. You know, the reality needs to set in that we're probably still several months away from sports. Yeah, what's so interesting that- is... It's, uh, a guy that I follow, this guy, Matt McCarthy, who we tried to have on this podcast, um, he's, he's been on the front of this sort of COVID stuff. Um, he actually said that he thinks the first baseball game in Yankee Stadium will be um, in July, like it being in July. And he thinks the NFL will start on time, which means that I'm going to owe Rufus $1,000, which is kind of a bummer. But so there is a lot, of, there is optimism from some people that are in the know that we could have sports as early as July. I think right now, if that happened, we'd all consider that a win, right? Well, and that's the thing. Like, it's, it's April now. So if we knew that July was the best case scenario, then we can kind of accommodate things like the three-point contest that you mentioned. I think there's a lot of people that are still thinking, you know, May, June. Uh, you know, the Las Vegas tourism industry is still holding out hope that they're going to be open on April 17th. There's no chance of that, but they're still taking uh, reservations. You know, I, I think your, your point there on July 4th would be a great idea. I mean, imagine if all the sports started up on the same day and that just happened to be July 4th. You know, there, there'd be no better celebration of America. That'd be the worst, man. You'd be, like have to be going to like family cookouts and stuff and you just want to sit at home. That's like, that's a terrible idea for July 4th because that would make everyone really hermits. Well, that's just it. What if by July 4th, we're not ready to do social interaction again, but oh. we have sports. I see what you're saying. That's a sports point. in a controlled environment. Right. You test all the play. Every player has to test negative to be able to play. No fans, that kind of thing. Right. So the, pro- the problem with all of that, so, I mean, I think there has, you can, you can create a scenario where it's very controlled and contained, but there's still too much risk if one of them gets test positive for COVID. Like, what the hell are you going to do at that point? And you've put all this time into creating this infrastructure that, you know, you think is foolproof and all of a sudden it's not. I think the macro environment around the world has to be considerably different regardless of whether they're able to create, like you could see a world right now where 
you could pretty safely fly every you know, NBA player and staff person you need private to Taiwan, which is like, and I keep mentioning them because they are this country that's created this bubble around them and they're doing great, right? As Trump would say, they're, do, they're doing great. They're doing wonderful. They're doing excellent. Best country, beautiful country. Anyway, so Tremendous. you fly them all there. You even quarantine them for 14 days there. And then you start playing games. You, you, could, you could see a, a world where you could do that, right? You could probably start doing that as soon as next week. Next, you, know, you could start doing that tomorrow and then we could have basketball within 14 days. But the problem is the macro level environment around this right now would not let us do that because the minute one thing happened that was a COVID positive test or anything close to it, like the whole thing falls apart. Anyways, any other things, questions for Captain Jack there, Rufus? So Captain, without, um, I mean, you're a sports better. You obviously spend a lot of time doing industry stuff and I don't know anybody that knows the, the US sports betting industry better, better than you do. And I know a lot of people, but your spare time you've launched this (laughs) you've launched this uh you've launched this youtube channel to basically you know educate people and sort of you've taken this as an opportunity to sort of build something that i'm get you know you and i talked about this when we were out in in california last month but um about sort of building this and and i kind of wanted you to talk to us a little bit about how you got that idea and sort of where you see it going Right. So, you know, I've actually had this idea for a long time, over a year now, to put together some kind of video content because, you know, if you search YouTube for sports betting content, it's bad. It's, it's either wrong or it's just a bunch of guys trying to make picks. Uh, none, of that, none of that content is evergreen. You know, it's all dated. Um, so I wanted to put out some content that would at least be there. So when people say, oh, I want to learn about sports betting and you know, nowadays, whenever you want to learn something, you go to YouTube and you look for a video on it. It's the easiest way to absorb information. So I want to put content out there that would be a little more evergreen. It would be ability for people to kind of go on there and, and learn about sports betting. Uh, but, you know, I just was never really happy with the product. I had tried recording some videos, editing them together, and it just didn't come out to be anything that I really liked. Uh, so when this all started, you know, and, and the rise of Zoom, Uh, I got a Zoom account and I saw I could do like a webinar on Zoom. And I said, well, you know what? I used to attend some trainings on webinars and and they were a pretty good way to do it. And you could get an audience there and get feedback. You know, maybe that's the the impetus I need. And and it was. So uh, I tried it out a couple weeks ago, uh, put together one, uh, how to emerge better from this than you were before uh, in ways that you could improve yourself over this downtime. Uh, and put together a little PowerPoint presentation, presented that on the webinar, got some feedback, answered some questions. And I liked it so much. I said, all right, I'll keep doing this. Uh, I got nothing but time, you know. And uh, so I put together a second one of uh, five ways you can trim the house edge. And, uh, you know, there was various advice there for people. And, uh, you know, we had an audience and we had Q&A afterwards. And the Q&A seems to be what a lot of people uh, gravitate towards. They they just throw, you know, throw out some questions and we sit here and, we, and I answer them for a while and keep it all under an hour um, and then chop them up and, and put them up on YouTube. And it's worked out pretty well. So uh, this week I'm going to be doing the, uh, the state of the states. It'll be kind of a recap of where we've been with legalized sports betting, where we're going, what states are doing it well, what states aren't, um, you know, and what basically consumers are looking for in a legal sports betting environment. And then I can answer some Q&A. Uh, I promised I'll touch on all 50 states. So uh, any American that attends the um, webcast will hear their state talked about. Um, but 
you know, and I'm just going to keep on doing these. Uh, they're a little bit time intensive to put together right now, but at the same time, uh, I, I've got the time for it. Uh, I've got the desire and, you know, we'll put out some content for people so that they can get through this. Very altruistic. I like it. Before, before, um, before you go, I want to ask one question. What do you think is going to be sort of the biggest unintended consequence of COVID-19 in the sports betting world? Like, um, that sort of nobody's really talking about. Hmm. You know, there's going to be a huge drop in discretionary spend for the average American. And what we've seen in the past is when we have economic downturn, uh, a good barometer is gambling. Uh, people tend to gamble less when they have less discretionary money to spend. And it's also one of the first indicators that we're on the rebound as well. Uh, you know, gambling spend goes up uh, even before we all realize that we're out of such a recession. So uh, one of the unintended consequences is that sports betting is probably going to become a barometer to see how well the country can recover from all of this. You know, if we go in and we see, uh, and we're going to see a drop in how much people are betting on sports when sports resume, that's one thing. Um, but, you know, no one really knows how long it's going to take us to recover from all of this. You know, everyone looks at the stock market and says, you know, oh, this could take years. And then you have some people say, oh, by the end of the year, we'll be right back on track. I think sports betting will be the way that we kind of have the best barometer for uh, how quickly we're able to get it back on track. You know, that's interesting, Jack, because when, um, when I was in Las Vegas in 2008, when I just moved there, Jason Bean, who worked with me at Las Vegas Sports Consultants, told me about his, you know, his, his uh, economic barometer was walking the strip and seeing how many people were there gambling. And, and he, he used that to decide when to sort of reinvest into the stock market. And it, he was spot on with that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great example because it's the, one of the first things that you're willing to kind of do discretionary spend on um, when you have a little extra money in your pocket. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I definitely want to check out those videos and maybe we, because you're now a media personality, we should maybe have you guys on like periodically, like once a month or something like that, at least. We talk Whatever about you guys want. I, you know, always been a big fan of your podcast. Definitely. We'd love to have you like every week if we could. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jack. And now this. Welcome into our second attempt at discussing COVID. So Rufus and I recorded um, an episode on, Wednesday, I think, and we we really just kind of freestyled on COVID and you know the modeling behind it and the challenges with with um, covering it generally. And when we re-listened to it, it it was a lot of it was just sort of me attacking Rufus, which is not uncommon for this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I think what we wanted to do, at least in re-recording this, was try to take a more measured approach that is less about me arguing and yelling at Rufus and more around an, an active discussion around some of the challenges that we see with Corona uh, coverage. And so to start with, um, obviously, Rufus was tested positive for coronavirus. And he, you know, tweeted that out on on Twitter. And I, I found myself to be a bit annoyed by Rufus on Twitter and specifically around coronavirus. And I think that trying to unpack why that was, there are a few different reasons. I think, I think you know, if you go back to that tweet where you 
talked about coronavirus. I think that you and I talked about this and, you know, you, you were presumed positive at that point, which was probably the most relevant thing that you could have said, or I'm sorry, the most accurate thing that you could have said. But instead you said, I have coronavirus. So I guess my question to you is, why did you say I have coronavirus, which I don't think was technically true at that point. Like you didn't know that to be true. Um, I mean, Jeff, and so, to this, go ahead. I still don't know that it was true because those tests are not 100% accurate. So I think the issue But aren't there is more that, false negative aren't there more false negatives than false positives? I believe so. And actually when I So once you got, got tested, testing, once you got tested, I would feel like you'd be comfortable in saying that you had coronavirus. Right, but I mean, I'm not 100% sure about that. I think it varies from test to test. So I don't really feel comfortable saying for you know for Okay, sure so first off, false testing false is bad. <laughs> I can't even say false positives. Testing is the testing is bad, I agree. But the other thing is that uh, even if I, if, even if my test had come back negative, I think the assumption was going to be that I already had had it and already had gotten it out of my system at that point. That's okay. what having talked to um, the medical professionals, the, um, that's basically what they thought would have been the case there. So the only reason that I actually did get tested was because the person I lived with did test positive and given that I'd been at the conference, they wanted to be able to sort of track this. Got it. Okay. So in your mind, you already had it, even though you weren't confirmed yet. And so that's why you came out with that statement. Yes. It would have been shocking to everybody if I did not have it. I had, yeah. I had the symptoms that made sense with it, with the sen- loss of the sense of taste, the headache, and I gave them to uh, the person I live with. You gave them or you don't even know, right? Well, the, the assumption is I did. I was traveling also the weeks before I'd, I'd been in Vail, which apparently was a hot spot in Colorado. And then, you know, I started, I, I started feeling not so great. Um, and, and obviously I live in close quarters. I mean, it's, I, I just don't see any way that it would not have transmitted from person to person. Unfortunately, I'm not, it, you know, we were not being vigilant like Chris Cuomo is locking himself in a basement um, and separating. We were, you know, I was taking care of um, my, my partner who was sick. Right. And you were, well, okay. So the, the, the challenge with this, right. Is that, you know, you, so you had coronavirus, you came out and you talked about it. I had been very, um, when we recorded the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you had wanted to talk about it and, and you did. And I, I, I thought you should take it out. And the reason I thought you should take it out at that point was I just didn't think that this was like, I think, I think the anecdotal stories are, are dangerous to some degree, right? Because, you know, after hearing you and your partner's symptoms and what you went through, that naturally made me go, oh, well, maybe this isn't so bad. Like their symptoms seem, you know, challenging, but, but relatively livable. Like, I mean, you said it was like three or four days of, a little bit of a fever and then um, some cough and some uncomfort and whatnot, but it went away pretty quickly. And that led me to all of a sudden jump to that conclusion of, Oh, okay. So maybe for healthy humans like Rufus and his partner, that the, this is, this is not so bad. I, I think that's one of the things that I've really been, you know, frustrated with you about because I think that there is, you know, you, you, you tweet out even, even the thing you sent me this morning, right. And you had you had previously tweeted out something similar to this, which was like a talking points memo, which, you know, I don't know how much you follow different publications and which publications are 
you know, biased and which ones have agendas and which ones you can tweet out, um, which ones are, are, you know, well-respected or peer reviewed or whatnot, you know, journalism right now is a effing mess. And so when you, you know, you've now sent to me slash tweeted out two things that have said the mortality rate, but like that, that deaths may be being underreported and the mortality rate therefore may be higher or, or this just must be more widespread um, in terms of fatalities or causing fatalities. You know, what, what's your point, I guess, in, in both of tweeting both of those out. So I've been trying to be a sponge. I haven't gone into this with any sort of preconceived notions and I'm trying to learn and, and trying to be led by the data in the same way that I do. Um, okay. So we, can we stop for one second? Though? Can, we, can we stop for one second? Because sure. like I just listened to Jared Kushner talk for, a minute, you know, and he probably mentioned the word data five or six times in that minute. And, you know, he kept saying, we're trying to be informed by the, but the data is so like for a, you know, experienced statistician model or whatever you want to call it. The data is bad. It's, but we even, both agree. You know, like even, even trying to make sense of the data, right. And there, there's so many reasons that the data is bad. Let's start with the but, fact that, it could be completely falsely reported, right? That's one of the things. Right. So, go ahead. But Jeff, let, let's say, let, let's bring this back to sports. Let's say that, you know, in, in some sport that each team has someone recording data and you notice that one team in one stadium, the data seems to be way off. In fact, I remember years ago looking at yeah, but you have, in, but in tackles. Those, but, but, but Rufus, in those cases, you have some ground truth, right? You have right. some ability That's to the- understand what's, what's right and what's wrong. You have enough history where you can correct if something's being falsely reported. In this case, we don't. Right, you want right? to try and to not- find the biases. And so if, if you can find why things are being underreported or to the, the degree, if you can try to find what truth really is in a certain situation then you, and then compare it to what is being reported, then you can have some sort of but, idea of the magnitude of the bias. And obviously, article- these are only... I mean, no, these are only are, ballpark estimates, but, but, but I think it, it'll, it better informs us. And I do think that, that the fact that China's data and it, it has been so bad and China has been, we believe, has been underreporting things um, to a huge extent and, and hiding this um, has made the world less prepared for this. So I think it's, it's important to actually try to figure out truth, even though it's very difficult. Well, so I, I think that, you know, again, you just made an assumption, right? Which is that China's data is wrong and that they're underreporting. Um, I think that we all like it. And here's the other issue, right? Is that you are a very liberal person, right? And you, I think, are this this pandemic has taken on a very partisan um, standpoint, where you know, and and I am definitely liberal leaning these days, but I'm definitely not as liberal as you are. And I've tried really hard, like every time, I don't know if you notice, but every time you see a certain type of article, you can look and you know, it's written by the times or, you know, it's written by the LA times, or, you know, it's written like, you know, it's written by a liberal, like it would be great if we could take that type of reporting and understand the biases that are being put in there before, you know, tweeting things out or making assumptions based on what's being written because at the core Again, the data is so bad. Now, let, let's go back to this. Uh, I, I think there's, there's, the, how do you figure out ground truth? Like, how do we start to learn more about, you know, what's 
what's really happening, right? And, and you know, I, I think for me, that's been trying to find people that are spending a lot more time looking at this that I believe in their process. Like I believe in, in who they are and what they're doing and what their agenda is, right? And that's often going to be, um, you know, epidemiologists that are just on the front line fighting this that have no horse in the race but to save lives versus any media people um, any government people, et cetera. Right. So, so for me, that's, and there's guys like Matt McCarthy, who I've mentioned before that I follow. There's Dave Friedberg, who, um, is the climate corp guy who's trying to like figure out via serum tests, what some of the real, uh, mortality rates, et cetera, what, you know, get, get by testing. That's, that's for me what I'm doing. That makes a lot of sense. And, I, and I've followed, I think I've followed five epidemiologists that I'd never heard of before now on Twitter. And I look at what they have to say about things. Um, and I think it's important that you, you do talk about the, uh, the fact that there are biases in, in what media covers. And I myself actually tweeted something out a few days ago about how I was disappointed that the Times, CNN, didn't, didn't really report on the sexual assault allegations that came up against Joe Biden recently. And that it's just completely hypocritical of them to cover all the Trump stuff, but not to cover that. Um, and so I, I like to think, I know you think I'm very liberal, Jeff. I like to think that I can sort of see the biases though. And um, actually I used to be, I used to be pretty damn libertarian. I voted for Gary Johnson in 2012. So I, I, I think so you basically wasted your vote. So. Basically. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I listen, I, I think that the media, you know, is completely biased. Um, and it's become that way in the U S and it's, it's just kind of a mess. Um, but like, let's take this back again to coronavirus, which is what we've been talking about really, which is like what, you know, the, the data, what is, what are the real data problems here? So we talked about false data. We, we talked about testing data, which is essentially like what everyone is focused on right now. And, you know, uh, we have our, our vice president talking about how, you know, we're doing 100,000 tests a day. On average, I think those tests are taking quite a long time to get returned. It's not like any of these are instantaneous tests. And for that reason, anything that we see right now in terms of, you know, mortality, not mortality, but in terms of testing or cases is going to be very, very lagging any actions that we're taking and even just the actions that we're taking are completely lagging. So, um, you know, they, they're leading obviously, sorry, I meant to say, but, but they are going to take a long time to see the impact of them. Yeah. And we're seeing that in Italy as well. The fact that things are finally starting to, I guess not, I, I guess the curve is fi finally starting to flatten a little bit. It's starting to level off, but it's taken a long time and, and they have a pretty extreme lockdown. But right, in, in but, regards but, to the testing, Jeff, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's varied very much from state to state and from person to person. I mean, I got my test results back in, I think it was two and a half, three days. I, I know things vary a lot from state to state and even from person to person within the state. And I know I got my test results back in two to three days. My brother got tested because he had been in close quarters with me. He's in, in, it has been 17 days, Jeff, and he has not gotten his test back. So what state is he in Maine. Got it. Yeah. He did the self quarantine for 14 days. Um, but he didn't get his, he still doesn't know. And, and at this point, what is the use of that information anyway? 
Well, it's the contact tracing. It, that's the use, right? That's what, what was the use in you getting tested also if you were quote unquote presumed positive in your mind? There was I, don't, I don't know. I was told, at first I was told that I did not need to be tested and I was considered a positive. And then I was told that I had to get tested anyway. So right. it, it's, the directives keep changing. Well, and that's honestly, that's like one of the biggest problems right now in our country's reaction to this is like there's no concerted effort that's consistent. Even just like the concept of masks right now, right? We were told that we didn't need masks or that we shouldn't have masks or we shouldn't wear masks. And now it's pretty clear that we should wear masks. Well, do do you think that was a good thing that they said that? It, the, it, well, I think the problem is look what happened with hydroxychloroquine after Trump tweeted about it. Or not tweeted about it, spoke about it at a press conference. People just started hoarding it. Do you think that, I, I think there's a way to alert people without creating this sort of mass hysteria and basically having our entire supply of whatever the thing is, in this case, masks disappear. Yeah, I, mean, I, guess, I guess the problem is people are stupid at the core. And we talk about this on the podcast all the time, because ultimately, like if everyone were smart, the way they would communicate that is they would say, hey, we think masks can help stop in the transmission of coronavirus. Um, they're not going to help you specifically, but they're going to help everyone around you. Um, and to do this, you don't actually need medical grade, you know, N95 masks. You just need something to cover your mouth that can, you know, prevent the, you know, the, the vi virus, the whatever, the shedding of the virus from getting into the air or getting around the people around you. So just figure out a way to put a scarf in front of your mouth, like Trump keeps saying, or, you know, whether it's, um, you know, if it's a non-medical grade mask or, you know, we just bought some on Etsy um, to just so we have some masks that are easy to sort of use um, and, and put on because I do think that's the responsible thing for everyone to be doing right now is certainly when you go out into any confined public space, i.e. the grocery, the grocery store, you should be wearing a mask. I mean, and the grocery store is basically the only place anybody should be going at this point. Um, well, I mean, I or think pharmacy I, or well, I, I, I think there's like going outside right? Like I don't necessarily, when I go exercise, want to be wearing a mask. Does, do you think I should be wearing a mask? When, when if I you're going for a run, that's yeah. a good question. I mean, in my neighborhood where I live, I live like right on the bay and there's, um, walking paths around me that people are on all the time. Um, certainly you get within six feet of people on those paths for a very brief time. When I run, I try to like literally run in the middle of the street. So I stay away from people but should I be wearing a mask when I run? And my answer right now would be no. Like my, but maybe I'm, it's the, the funny thing about this whole pandemic is we just keep getting stricter and stricter in terms of the things that we do, right? Where maybe if we had just been that strict from the beginning, we would have quelled a lot of this and we might be much closer to this being, being done than we are. Well, I think we all agree with that, that, that we should have, we could have and should have reacted sooner. But we're still not, that's not even the thing. Like, that doesn't that mean right now we should be trying to envision what the most extreme thing we should be doing is because, you know, we really, that's really like where we should start. And if anything, after we start there, we can relax some things going forward. But the, what we're doing instead is, you know, even if you think about like the, what Fauci said today, I think on the Today Show was that we should have a national lockdown. Right. And, and, you know, shouldn't we have a national lockdown right now? Shouldn't we have at least consistency amongst not necessarily a lockdown, but at least consistency around 
shelter at home um, state to state. There's still states in the South where there's no shelter at home, no stay at home kind of restrictions. And Right, right. And if you think about it, Jeff, like the economic impact of this is, is bad, obviously. It's been bad the entire time. I mean, you look at the Northeast, New England, those states are shut down and have been shut down. And, and so I feel like it's the lack of consistency that is, that is hurting us from a public health perspective. But at the same time, I don't think that the fact that regulations are not, I guess people aren't locked down as much in Southern states is necessarily like doing that much for the economy at this point. Right. At this point, the the economy is F regardless. But that's, but that's a macro view from a privileged human being versus a micro view from someone, you know, the fact that those states are still, those people are still allowed to you work make a good point. for their own personal economy. That's great. Right. Yes. That, that's a very good point. Like, cause the, they have businesses, people have, there's so many yeah. small businesses out there yeah. that are facing issues that yeah. they just can't. And, and they're in this really difficult catch 22 of if they lay off their staff, people, you know, they get criticized and, for being insensitive and greedy and selfish, but if they don't, their business fails. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think again, like at the end of the day, it's, it's really just about, you know, the, the objective function that you have. And and that's one of the other things too, I think that we argued about um, ad nauseum in the last one, which is, you know, you come to this with the subjective function that, I think almost like any um, incremental death caused by coronavirus is what we're trying to prevent. And I'm not positive that that's right. Now, again, personally, I think I'm in a place where I can shelter at home and I can still make a salary and my financial, you know, I can still live my life. And so it's really easy for me to sit in an ivory tower and say, we should all be sheltering at home. But the reality is, you know, I have lots of friends in the restaurant business that are struggling right now. And I have, you know, we have, we have like, you know, the the gardeners that are around here can't work. Our house cleaners can't work and those types of things, like all these things. And so it's, it's, it's not our our gardeners. (laughs) No, like, I mean, our gardeners, like, our gardeners meaning like the gardeners all in the area that I live in, right? I was like, like Jeff has multiple gardeners, not just one gardener, multiple gardeners. That's not, I have, I have, a, I have a, I have a group that's a gardening group that comes, you know, it's not just one individual. He outsources to other people. Like, no, my point was that we literally saw a policeman yesterday and talked to him and they're handing out thousand dollar fines for gardeners that are still working. Right. Like you, yeah. try to work right now. And, and that's what I meant by our gardeners, right? You know, but, but the, the point of this is that the economy is, and this is, this is, you know, Trump's initial point, which is like, how much trouble, how much damage are we going to do to the economy? And it's, it's almost become an un-PC, un, you know, like uninformed, you know, more on the right side thing to propose that that's possible, that we might want to worry about the economy as well as worrying about human life. But I think that the, the challenge with that is because our data is so poor and because our understanding of coronavirus is so poor, everyone says, oh, well, let's err on the cautious side. Um, and that's the right thing to do. But we don't, 
know if that's true, depending on like what the data is. If the data were skewed all, all in one direction, we would probably have a different point of view on that. And that was, again, like another thing that I got on you about because you, you sent that tweet out, which was based on sort of your one sample size of, of yourself or your two sample size of the testing and, um, you know, what it meant to, to be quarantined and how long people should be quarantined. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, going back really quickly to the point you made with my tweet about my symptoms and tweeting out that I was positive. I don't know if you saw, I was watching a little bit of TV yesterday and saw Chris Cuomo was talking about how, actually I think this is a clip on the internet, but Chris Cuomo was talking about how he wished he had gotten it earlier so he could spread information about what, you know, what symptoms are like and how it's not really that bad. But I mean, it's bad, but it's, you know, he's like, you're not going to die. He told Anderson Cooper, you're not going to die from it, but it's not going to be fun, brother, or something like that. And I think you're right that I think there is some value to hearing people's experiences, but at the same time, there are, there are different strains of this. And I don't think you can extrapolate okay. from so, anybody. So stop, stop. What, you, well, how many strains do you think there are? Well, I don't even know what technically differentiates. So why the, why how many the things say, why the fuck would you say that? You don't know. Like that, that was, a, you just made a scientific statement with no, okay. Okay, but right, but I've heard from this? people. I've heard from people no, that how about this, Rufus? know this. It, how about this? No, there, the rumor is that there's the two strains to this, right? That there's like a strain that's much more extreme, and this came out of China. Like it's not, but like I'm not. Virus I've mutated stuff, okay. and I've heard this, and like you don't know. Like so, stop getting okay. into a world where you're like there are two okay. strains. Sorry, like, sorry. My, my point. Oh, you, you, like the point is that maybe the I used the wrong word. Say. Okay, go ahead. But the point is that there are di- people, different people have different experiences. There we go. People, pe- it, it attacks people for whatever reason in much different ways. And the scary thing for me is when it was in Italy, all right, and 90% of the people that were dying had pre-existing conditions or were of, of a certain age, right? It, it seemed pretty clear that it didn't attack a lot of young people. Now, now that it's come to the U.S., and this may be like a reporting issue, this may be whatever, but it seems like it does attack some younger people. Anecdotally, like there have been younger people dying in the U.S. Now, why is that, right? And, and I don't think people necessarily know yet. But how much of that is a data issue versus actually that's what's happening? I mean, for example, in China, we we heard that not a lot of young people were dying. Does, but does it, does it do we know? I mean, does the, my point to you is that like when it was in Italy, we felt like okay we might be okay because it's probably just old people and people have asthma or people that are obese or whatever, or people that smoke. And it was like, I'm young, I'm fine. I've definitely become more scared of getting coronavirus over the last, you know, week and a half. Like before I was kind of like, I'll be fine. I'll probably just have a mild cough and maybe a little bit of a fever and I'll get over it in three to four days. But I don't feel that way as much now because of the new data that's anecdotally been surfacing Right. And I, 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 you know, shudder to actually call it data because it's very small sample size. But you hear about young people like who are healthy in their 20s and 30s dying from coronavirus now. Right. But but are you ignoring the base rates still? I mean, I, I just don't think we were reading as many personal stories about people in Italy and China that were young dying. I know, you know, the, the doctor, the whistleblowing doctor in China died. From this. He was what, 32, 34, well, something now, like that. So I think it's hitting close to home. Because so we're getting these anecdotal stories, Jeff, which 
we were not really getting out of Italy. That's fair. That's a, that's a fair point. But, um, and, and again, like one of the classic biases, right, which is like, um, aver- uh, sorry, uh, availability heuristic, which yes. is that we all place more probability on things we can imagine. Um, like there is an influx of just these biases that are, that are happening to us. Like obviously selection bias. I mean, all these biases are coming in and how, how it's shaping. But again, you know, it's important for us to sort of call each other out on these things um, and, and to not wax philosophical on, on things that we don't know, right? Like this idea that, you know, there's also like this idea that I've heard that, you know, medical prof- professionals are in more jeopardy because of how often they can be exposed to it, right? Like the more you get exposed to it, the worse it could be kind of thing. You would think that would we be don't true. know, right? We right, don't know. Exactly. That, that's you would that would de- that's definitely true of being, of, of actually contracting the disease, right? The more people you're exposed to for sure, the more you would. All right. So but like that it's a worse version. I mean, I remember hearing this narrative sort of that, the Chinese doctor that died, like, oh, well, he was exposed to so much of it that he probably had a worse case of it because of, because there were more. Okay. So let, let's, move on. let's move on a couple things. So like, okay. So, so if it's so hard to model, why even try to model it? Do you think it's worth trying to model or, or yes. like, what, what, sh- what should we be doing with these models? I guess is the question. Well, the question is what is the purpose of modeling in general? And I think it is preparing an adequate response and policy choices and, you know, decisions for the sake of public health and the economy to try to best combat this and figure out where it's going to go. Let's say that you were the president right now and you had all the resources in the world in front of you. What would you, how would you go about trying to, you know, create a, an accurate model um, or set of models for coronavirus? That's a good question. Um, so I would try to get a bunch of really smart people around me to do it. That, that would, okay, so how, would you recruit, <laughs> how would you recruit the smart people? I'd find the smart epide- I'd find epidemiologists and people that have experience okay, so, doing these kinds of things. Okay, so this is actually like a classic kind of thing in building teams, right? You you would first try to um, find experts, right, in the in the area, but you would also want to seek sort of diverse. You know, diverse perspectives or a diverse set of, you know, the diverse teams are the best set of teams, right? So you would try to find epidemiologists, but you would also probably try to find statisticians. You would probably try to find people like gamblers, like that you would create just this really diverse team. And then I would actually like even, even try to come up with like an ensemble, a bunch of ensemble teams or a bunch of different teams that are, we're, we're trying to build this, who are trying to approach this in many different ways some from the top down, some from the bottoms up and from different disciplines um, to go after this. And so let's say you just did this, right? What you would end up with is a range of models with assumptions to each model, correct? Yes. And then you'd have to look and sort of, yeah. So then you would come up with like an upper bound and a lower bound and you would be able to like look at all the different assumptions and you could see like what assumptions that you could actually move to like increase or decrease the upper bound slash lower bound. Do you know what I mean? Like you would think yeah. about like, okay, this, this model assumes social distancing at this level and the, the social distancing causes, you know, this type of R naught or whatever, this type of viral factor 
fire coefficient, et cetera, um, you would basically have uh, almost like a simulation uh, way to sort of play around with different policies that you could create that may or may not lead to sort of this range of potentially, because what, what you want to create is, is what you want to understand is, is what, what death looks like, right? Like, I mean, sort of, so again, th then the question becomes like, what would your objective function be? What variable would you be trying to optimize for um, in terms of like the outcome or the output variable? And that's, that's a good question. The question is, how much do you value human life? And we, no, but I'm not, I'm even, I'm even just talking. No, but, like, but this I'm, is I'm something asking. that doctors, these are decisions that people, I mean, not, you know, they don't think of that way necessarily, but these are decisions that have to be made all the time. Well, so let's think not, about not just like, in a so pandemic. What are the, what are the potential output variables? One could be to, like positive, positive cases of it, right? One could be hospitalizations. One could be deaths like, but deaths is interesting because we've already highlighted like the attribution to coronavirus. What does that even mean? Right? Like if someone dies and was never tested positive for coronavirus, how do you then, it becomes probably very subjective in terms of whether they were coronavirus or not. Right. Exactly. Which is why, you know, I shouldn't say, I think I've read some articles that have done some digging and found that, that I think the total number of deaths are going to be way underreported. No, but, yeah, really, but the interesting to, thing you're, is you're allowed, you're allowed to say, I think on something like that, there's no problem with me in that. My problem is when you say something like, we know there's different strains and we, that's a little bit misleading because we don't know that. And it, you're not in any position to actually be the one reporting that. Okay. But uh, I think it has been reported. That's but fine. We, you can say you can say it's been reported that there are different strains, and maybe you can then reference the article that you read, so someone can go and make their decisions themselves. Like if it's fucking from, from fucking talking points again, maybe they won't necessarily care as much if it's from like you know some peer-reviewed scientific journal. Okay, so so I read an article yesterday that basically investigated the death rates in Italy and found that in a lot of these towns that were the hardest hit they had these huge spikes in number of deaths that were not attributed to coronavirus. And this was the same sort of throughout this region in Italy. So from, they looked at a bunch of different towns. And, uh, and so the conclusion there was that deaths were, were underreported. Not everybody was being, that died was necessarily being tested for, for it. So, uh, and it was by not like orders was, of magnitude. Not everyone that was dying was being attributed to coronavirus yes. in your mind correctly. Correct. But the interesting thing is, so, so this was sort of forensic data, you know, for, I guess forensic journalism, I don't know, but, but it was looking at the overall baseline death rates normally at this time of year and saying, this seems, this is a huge anomaly here. This town, normally 35 people die a month and this month it's been 130 and there are only 29 deaths due to coronavirus. But the interesting thing is that I've heard that deaths are going to be down overall in the United States as a result of this, because you have fewer people driving cars, you have fewer people going out and doing dangerous things. I mean, basically if you, you, it's harder to get yourself into trouble, especially if you're a younger person, if you're cooped up in your house. Okay, and so let me, let me put another one to you. The, the one thing that has been reported widely is that there's a higher level of alcohol consumption going on right now. And we yeah, know people have nothing better to do, huh? Alcohol consumption correlates a lot with many different 
sort of later on risk factors for death. Ooh, so so deaths overall might be down, but future deaths could be up. No, but that's real, right? Right, like, right. No, we have a prolonged period of of three months or four months where people are just smoking and drinking a ton because they have to because they well, not no smoke. Other- I wouldn't say smoking as much because it's you're, most people are inside. But I mean, well, smoking I'm off. stuck in an apartment, maybe. But what about the, also, I don't know about you. I'm eating a lot healthier now because we're cooking, like, like we're cooking. My partner actually made a huge 20 pound turkey yesterday. We had a mini Thanksgiving, like, but I'm eating a lot more healthy because I'm not eating out as much. And I think my point is that like, this is one of those classic cases where anecdotally you can make the story, tell any story you want. Like you just said, okay, yeah, but we're eating healthier. Like me and my partner, we're eating healthier. And you know, like, but I'm telling you that I'm drinking a lot more than I, I normally would. I'm Are you drinking like, more? For sure. I mean, I like purposely make myself not drink days, but like sometimes there's nothing to do. I like, and I'm not saying like, <laughs> I'm drinking to like, as Mike, Mike Tyson would say to Bolivia, but I'm, I'm drinking, <laughs> I'm drinking like a glass of wine a night. And I don't normally do that. Like I normally try to, you know, not drink during the week and drink on the weekends, that kind of thing, you know, like, and, but every day, since every day feels like a weekend now, it's, it's, it's a whole different story. Yeah. I mean, a glass of wine at night is nothing. No, but I mean, I probably have a little bit more than that. Okay. 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 The, the point, the point, the point is that I'm definitely drink my alcohol intake has definitely gone up during the shelter at home. And, you know, I'm a data point of one, but you do hear that alcohol sales have gone up in most regions based on this. Okay. So Jeff, here's the question. So we know that the data we're getting on deaths is probably not going to be accurate because there will be deaths that should be attributed to coronavirus that aren't. And as well, and, and there also will be deaths that are caused by the fact that people with other conditions probably aren't getting as good medical care because it's all focused on, on COVID-19. And we also know that there's all these other, um, that the, well, there, there, I guess there's these ancillary, uh, well, effects on the death rate right? People being cooped up in their home and all this, but we don't really have great data on that because that's, how do you model, how do you model the effect of being at home on the death rate in a particular area in general? I guess you could do that, but, but how do you pull this all together into sort of a number to get what the actual death rate is? And what is the death rate that we, and what is the death rate we care about? Is it death rate due to coronavirus? Like people dying just from coronavirus or is it people dying that would not have died if there was no COVID-19? So one of the things that you're leaving out that article that you, that you sent me was the end part of it, which I thought was interesting, which was saying that if the actual coronavirus, you know, spread or whatever was closer to a hundred percent of regions, which it very well may have been because there was no social distancing and like yeah. it was just, then the actual mortality rate would have been right in line with what it is across the board. Right. So there, again, there are a million different uh, conclusions that you can get to with the crappy ass data that we have. And depending I, on your assumptions. Again, like it just, it's such a fool's errand right now. So if, again, if we go back to this idea of, well, then why the hell do we try to model it and how would we go about it? I would just go with and get a bunch of different people with, from, from diverse backgrounds to approach this in very different ways 
and I would make them very, you know, present their models with very clear assumptions. And I would ask them to create models that we could change, you know, can I just change that little cell? Can I move that? Can I change? Can I, can I move that slider over? Like I want to have some level of ability to do that so I could play around with different scenarios to make the most informed policy decisions as I could. Um, yeah, you want you want to know the sensitivity of it. But to the, the problem is the problem. The, the problem is that I think no matter what you do, no matter how smart the people you get right now, you're going to be completely, completely, completely hampered by the actual um, input data that we have right now, which I think is is so bad. Um, and I think even just the way that we're influencing that data um, in, in a good way, meaning like getting better at treating, getting better at understanding how to treat. Um, then I just don't think you're going to get like accurate numbers that are even, even, you know, I just think they're just going to be completely accurate, inaccurate. So, so do you think what, um, I forget the, who wrote the article that I referenced about deaths in Italy. Do you think that kind of investigation is worthwhile? I mean, not really, to be honest. I, I think it's, I think it's just like a waste of, of time because, um, there are so many unknowns in it. I think it's just journalism. I think it's like Spurs conversation and, and maybe it's worth doing because like you and I will talk about it and maybe some smart listener of ours will like take it and, and try to create something more substantive out of it. Um, but I think, you know, no, I, I, I don't, I don't really think it is. And, and that's like a lot of the problem with so much of the journalism that's going on right now. You know, like I, you know, I'm not a fan of Trump and like people have like, you know, confuse me with the liberal on Twitter. It's not, I'm not, I just don't like Trump. I don't, I don't think he's a good leader and I don't think he's like good for our country. Um, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, the long articles that are being written right now about how much he effed this up are, are worth everyone's time. I mean, yes, we go back to the, the sort of, you know, we talk about, um, first principle thinking and you try to, you know, first principle thinking means that you try to start with something that's inarguable. And it's inarguable that we that that um, Korea, South Korea, and the U.S. had their first confirmed, you know, coronavirus um, positive on the same day, right? Right. It was, it's I think January nineteenth, right? I've read some sources that say ours was on the twenty-first, but let's just say that within plus or minus two days that they were the same day, and that's inarguable. And it's inarguable that their country is in a very different situation right now than we are from, from, from every bad number, right? Like, um, in terms of, uh, you know, like lifestyle, in terms of number of deaths, in terms of number of confirmed positives. Um, it's also inarguable that they are what a sixth of the size of us. So that's obviously contributes to the ability to do that, but their problem is not a sixth of the size of our problem right now. It's a lot less than that, than that, that problem, than that size of our problem. So to me, that's the more interesting thing to think about how we botched this. And, you know, it's not, again, it's not just Trump that botched it. You know, we talked about this. You and I went to a conference with international people there. And, you know, personally, right, I give you crap or people give you crap for being tested positive and and being irresponsible, but that could happen to any of us, right? We were all there. We all made that irresponsible decision. And we were part of the problem also as much as, you know, obviously you want to hold the president of the United States to a little bit more of a, you know, bar in terms of how much responsibility they have than Rufus and Jeff. 
but we certainly were irresponsible in going to that conference. Um, I was irresponsible. We were irresponsible in the social gatherings that we did during that conference um, and, and everything that we did. And so, you know, it, 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 as a, as a country, as a society, we've gotten ourselves into this situation as much as, you know, sitting around and blaming our president. Yeah. I guess the question though is, I mean, the president can act in a, well, he has the power of the federal government to, which is a centralized body, which can create directives aimed at everybody. Whereas if Jeff, if you or I had not gone to the conference, the conference still would have happened. Although yeah, they would have like, needed another just, moderator for the gambling panel. But that's, so you're saying like, I mean, you had this. No, I'm saying, last, I'm saying the president has a lot more influence than you or I do. I know, but and, in, and our last can, podcast, in our last podcast, you basically were like, well, because the, the you know, the, the whatchamacallit, the, the conference because, is going to be Because the organizers did not cancel yeah, it. I, might, I, I figured went. I might as well yeah. go anyway, right? Right. Like, I had been, look, Jeff, I had been trapped. I had been in Mammoth, California, then Telluride, then Vail, like right before the conference. So I had been, been living my best life. And, you know, obviously I was reading and listening to podcasts all, you know, about COVID-19 and, and thought it was a bigger issue than a lot of people did. But, but well, I, I wasn't changing my... Spanky said you made jokes about it. I made jokes about what? Yeah, make jokes about like how you're going to give it to everyone. When? He tweeted out something like how you made a j- made jokes about how you're going to give it to everyone. I don't think so. I. I mean, I don't know, I, but I I don't I don't think that. And again, like I, this is not just you. Do you just happen to get it? Like any of us? Right. I, I wasn't symptomatic. I just want like when I was making if I was making jokes, I was like feeling up, totally fine. In the morning on Friday on Saturday, and you said that you had a headache and did not feel great. Right. I had also had a late night of drinking, Jeff. So I thought I was just hungover. Right. You thought that was because you were hungover. And my my point is that tomorrow, if that happened to you, if you felt that way in the morning, you probably would have acted very differently, knowing what you know now and where we are right now, than you did that morning. Right, knowing that knowing that a headache was one of the symptoms because I didn't have a cough, I didn't have any of the symptoms that I thought were associated with coronavirus. Right, I mean, we don't. the The problem with the coronavirus thing is there's there's not a lot even of consistency around. I mean, there's some major symptoms, right? Like a headache is a small symptom, right? The major sy- symptoms are fever, cough, and some sort of shortness of breath, right? Is that right. is that still con- consistent with what we've heard? I think so. Yeah, uh, I don't want to misspeak so headache, because I'm not an expert here. No, I don't but, know about like, strains, but even like even even my nanny, right? Who, um, you know, has basically been self quarantined with us. We told her not to come in the last couple of days because she had woken up with like a slight fever, meaning ninety nine three, and a little bit of a headache. And I was like, "You're you can't come back until you're." you know, asymptomatic for 24 hours, you know, like of that. And someone was like, well, a headache's not a symptom. And I'm like, it it actually is. is. Like, we don't, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't know. Like, it's like, these are all like sore throat. Is sore throat a symptom? Like it's, it's it's all over the place. No. And and Jeff, when I, when I taken my temperature, I didn't take my temperature. I don't think until Monday, the highest I ever was, was in the 99s. Right. Again, but you had a very, very mild. Yeah, form. no, I, I had I had a very extremely mild symptoms, but but I feel I feel really bad though because I do think that I 
spread it to probably a good number of people at the conference. I mean, I know a lot of people that I socialized with there ended up ended up getting it or presumed or presumed they, they, they presume that they have it because they've had the characteristic symptoms, uh, but just haven't been able to get tests. So I, I feel I feel awful about it. I mean, I didn't obviously it wasn't intentional. Right. So if you, if you, again, like, let's take a step back. Okay. And let, let's, let's think about this now. My whole, my whole point in saying this was we give, you know, a lot of people in our government crap for our lack of response, but like all of us pretty much have had, you know, unless, unless like, you know, what was crazy is like two or three weeks before this even started, like the hysteria a friend of mine um, who's a really successful VC in the biotech space, he had told people that he was going to quarantine his family. And we were like, you're crazy. You're going to quarantine your family. Why? And he had seen, he saw this was coming. So there are a lot of smart people that knew this was coming and it took us a long time to come around and, and, and get to where we wanted to now. And, and I think your point around the government has a, has a role and an ability um, to do things that we can't. Um, but I also think it's a cop out for us to say that, that we couldn't have played a much larger role and, and helping, you know, this not spread. Okay. So let's look at the countries that have had good responses that have limited the spread, Taiwan and South Korea being the notable ones, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's because of in how individual people acted or do you think it was because of government directives and basically I think people. It, I think it was both, but I also, but I, I, I agree with your point, right? The, the reason that both of those acted in that way was because the government took a leadership position in pushing that agenda forward. Right. And in China, people so, didn't have a choice. Yeah. Well, let's right. not talk about China. Right? Yeah, I, I think we, we don't know. I don't think we don't know a lot, a lot think, about China. I think Taiwan and Taiwan and South Korea are, are two really good ones to study. But because the government mandated things, right? The government, like people did not have a choice as to what, at least, well, I, I don't know the specifics well, I mean, of the responses. Both but. of them, both of, both of them did different things. Okay. Like Taiwan had had a, a, a real program in place because of what happened with SARS. And one of the big things that Taiwan did, and this is to your point, is they really, really worked hard to inform the public. So they started this concept of a daily press conference where they had definitive information. Now, the problem with us is our daily con daily press conferences are a shit show. They're like everything from infomercial stars to, you know, um, <laughs> Trump you know, is ranked no, number one in Facebook. Apparently, that's 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 the. No, but you, you know that he had a like side by side with the CEOs of four one hundred companies. He had the CEO of MyPillow.com up there talking, and the guy that does the infomercials. And you know, like Wait, I, Trump had the CEO of a company called MyPillow on his press conference. Yes. Whoa. What have I been missing? You've been missing a lot, Rufus. And that's, we, we, the that's honestly, can we get Pillow Girl there? That's, that's honestly part of the reason that like, I've been so frustrated with you during this whole thing because you are, you are revered as a thought leader, all right, in sports betting and even in, in the sort of like analytics you know, world at large, right? And your lack of like informedness in many pieces of this. Like this is not just a read some epidemiology false. This is like a figure out what the, this is just like. The you want me to create, you want me to create a narrative and figure out what's going on, but no, no, also no, no, I'm, no. This, is, this is the issue. This is like us listening to, you know, Simmons or RJ Bell's podcast. 
The reason we do it is we want to be informed about what like other people are thinking that aren't necessarily like us. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ways that we become smarter is by having empathy for people or having like understanding for people that are different than us. Right. Right. So, you know, that in, in a nutshell is what's happening here to some degree. Like I was, you know, talking to um, some people about the, the, the concept of, you know, the fact that like, some of this wasn't Trump's fault supposedly because, you know, the first CDC, the, the first 50 tests, the 50,000 tests, the CDC sent out didn't work. And we missed time because those tests didn't work. And now again, I don't want to get into this cause I don't know. Wait, what, why, why didn't we have the WHO tests again? Well, the, the, there's people that believe the WHO tests weren't accurate either. Like I'm, I'm just saying like, you don't, I don't know what's right and what's wrong, but I try to read as much about it to understand like what are the different viewpoints that people have because ultimately like what I want is for everyone to be on the same page, right? Where we're all trying to do the same things and we're not making decisions based on what, um, what, you know, whether we're okay. red or blue. So I, I'm a little bit insulted that you're saying that I'm not informed simply because I'm not watching pr- Trump's press conferences. I, I spend a lot of time reading about this, but you're informed, you're informed about, very specific pieces of it, right? You're not informed necessarily about how the rest of the world might be thinking and why someone might have the opinion that they do. You're, you're informed from certain, like this is like the- No, I'm, I'm not just informed from certain biased when I was, when news I was sites. Do you ever watch Fox Sports? I mean, Fox News? I have occasionally, yeah. Like have you watched I, it during the pandemic? Yeah, I kind of wanted to see what Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity were saying, to be honest. I actually read a transcript of Rush Lim- what, last night of Rush Limbaugh's show and what he was saying about this. I was curious. Yeah. I mean, I think it actually is relatively important for you to know what's happening in those press conferences because they're getting such tremendous ratings, as Trump would say, like higher than the season finale of The Bachelor. Bachelor which is Yeah, he said that in the press conference. Um, Andy tweeted it. So... The reason, because so many people are watching these, they are informing public opinion. And because of that, it's it's like, if you are going to comment on this, it's probably important for you to understand how people are thinking so that you can frame your comments such to sort of like shape, you know, and again. I mean, I can, I can get recaps of the press conference. I don't, I don't need to watch it. Where do you get, where do you get them from? Because it's covered. When people but say Trump you, said this in a where, conference. Where, where do you get conference. them from? You get them from the New York Times? Because if you get them from the New York Times, they're definitely going to be filtered, right? Like I'm, I'm just saying, like this is okay. a classic. Like you can't live when I, when we were at Twitter, when I was at Twitter, one of the things that we worried about were the echo chambers that get created by Twitter. You right. follow people that you believe have similar mindset to you that you're interested in, blah blah blah. Then you start to only see and only interact with those people, and you become in your own little echo chamber where you only believe the stuff you believe, right? And yeah, core, that's why like, it's important for you to watch the press conferences. I mean, I know you don't want to, it's like, it's annoying, but it's, it's pretty entertaining to some degree. And to hear what people are saying straight from the, like, like if you watch the press conferences, you're going to see like Fauci's amazing. Fauci like really to me I like Fauci. Is, is, a, is like a voice of like reason. And he's not afraid to challenge, you know, and like people that I know are like, Hey, we got to make sure Fauci doesn't get fired. We got to every, right. every, and every public thing we talk about, we should just talk about how much Fauci loves the president because we don't want Fauci to get fired. Right. We don't want the, there to be like a, 
uh, uh, hate firing because he's not, you know, whatever. Kissing or because Fauci's getting too much credit. Yeah, Every, everything like that. But again, like I, what was interesting is I listened to uh, a Gavin Newsom talking on uh, Fox or talking somewhere. And, you know, obviously he probably hates Trump. I mean, I'm guessing, right? Like they've, they've got at each other. But his level of maturity and <laughs> how he was talking about Trump, he was basically like, we, we just can't, we can't be bipartisan right now. We got we to gotta really all work together. Sorry, we all got to work. We, we, can't be yeah, we, have, to, we have to be bipartisan. We have to, yeah, we have to be. We have to, anyways. Okay. Well, right, right. And he um, wants, I mean, I think right now the governors are realizing that if you make nice with Trump, it's much more likely that you get sent ventilators and other medical you know, equipment. But it's like classic bullying and it's just... It's, it's awful. Yeah, it is. But, I mean, you understand why watching these press conferences at times can piss me off. And, and Yeah, but I mean, I, I, you know, I, for a while I was like, it was like a must-see TV for me. I was like, it was the one thing in my day that I was planning around because I wanted to like know what he was trying to say. Like, you know, what I, I, I want to understand what Trump is trying to say so that when I talk to someone who is, you know, supportive of Trump going forward. I want to understand like what message he's been, he's been programming to them to make them think that he's doing a good job. So you I can't, guess you can't effectively yeah. have that argument unless you know what he said or what he directly said. Right. Well, I know that he trusts Jared Kushner's models now. Right. But you, you again, no noted you epidemiologist, you know that from having seen people clown Jared Kushner on Twitter, right? Not well, no. See, seeing the clip of the press conference, a one-minute clip. Yeah. So it's I true. mean, again, you're right. You're right. I mean, the, he might have said a lot of other things. You just, you just, you have to be, you as a human being, I have to spend ability, all my time watching no, TV. You, you as a human being who have an ability to filter information in ways that other people can't, can't rely on filtered information because then you don't actually like, you don't perform your value in society, which is being able to critically think about problems and distill them in a way that help other people think about them. So, okay, let's move on to the last. Maybe, maybe I'm just not the critical thinker that you thought I was. No, I think you're, I think honestly, I think you're just kind of lazy about some of this stuff. Like, I think that it's, it's more, it's not that you're not a critical thinker. It's you're a critical thinker on what you get exposed to and what you want to be exposed to. Um, and that's, it's, it's just a little bit, it's lazy, but you've been a self-admitted lazy person your whole life. I have. You always tell me you're lazy. <laughs> About some things. That's how, I mean, I feel like everybody's that way, you're right? There, there's person. certain things huh. you're like, there's I'm, certain I'm things. at the core, I'm a lazy person. Also, I think a lot of smart people are lazy because what we try to do is figure out the quickest and most elegant, easiest way to get something done. And in, yeah. on the core, that, that is, that could be a definition of laziness. I'm always, I'm also somebody that can't do nothing now. Yeah. But that's like not lazy. That's ADD. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> or OCD, ADD, whatever. Anyway, so I don't think it's OCD. Um, I'm, I'm the farthest thing from OCD. Okay. So like the last thing we have, we have about 10 minutes left. The last thing I want to talk about is sort of macro impacts of Corona. Um, you know, on the economy, um, obviously how, how long do you think, starting today you know what was the dow app before this whole thing happened it was like at 26,000 or whatever uh i think it hit 30,000 at one point 30,000 okay so let, let's say it was at 30,000 i can, i don't even know i'm not i don't follow this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis when do you Wait, are, are you following the stuff on a day-to-day -day basis now i am yeah me too 
And, and so, are you are you doing any trading in the stock market? Not really. I I I just put some money into like a SEP IRA at the mm -hmm. beginning of all of this pandemic, and so I've been kind of following that a little bit, but I haven't been actively trading it. I just I just don't believe in actively trading this kind of stuff because I just don't know enough about it to really follow it. No, okay, so, I don't either. But I think you can. I think if you have a macro view on things, sure. That, but I don't. I, just like, I don't. I don't think I could time the bottom. But I but, think but that if like, I dollar cost average and like buy, this is a retirement account, right? I'm not. I'm not trying to. You know. Anyways, okay. So when do you think that the market gets back to the Dow goes to thirty thousand again? Ooh. Not for. Not for at least two years. But I don't know. The thing is, I, so I, I do think there's so. You say I mean, 2020, mid mid two thousand twenty two would be your your over under. Maybe I mean, but it all depends on the policy choices too, and what you know, both monetary and fiscal policy. Because right now the Dow's at just under twenty one thousand. So to get to what, what was the number you said twenty nine thousand, it's no, a substantial gain thirty thousand. That's a that that's that's hell thirty thousand. That, that's a fifty. That's a huge gain. Um, but I, I think it it. I mean, I think one thing to be aware of is the fact that a lot of Trump's response has been designed to sort of stimulate the stock market because that's kind of a barometer he uses of the economy and of his presidency. Would, would you agree with that? So, so part of this then would wrap into the next question, which is what do you think the impact on the presidency will have? Right now, if you were given the choice of Trump uh, or no Trump and it was 50-50, it was you know, minus 110 on both sides, which side would you take? From a betting perspective, yeah, I would. I hate to say it, but I would say Trump probably. I think Trump what is a favorite. You, what would you have said before the coronavirus issue? Trump is a favorite. So, do you think his odds have gone down or up during the coronavirus? Well, I, I think Joe Biden. I think, I think the Dems have nominated someone that is not a particularly strong candidate. To put so you just don't. You don't. You just don't think it even matters because Biden's such a weak candidate. I think. Yes, basically. Okay. I mean, I think it does matter, but I think here's the, here's the question. So wartime presidents, so basically uh, the economy, if, if you have a bad economy, the president has worse odds of being reelected. It's always bad for the incumbent, but also a wartime president, wartime presidents tend to be popular and people galvanize support around the president. So the question is, do people treat this like a wartime? Because this is, people, people know that Trump, wait, people know that Trump didn't, create coronavirus. But one point, one point on this, right? The reason that wartime, one of the reasons that wartime presidents do well is because they're able to stimulate the economy during war. That's a fair like point. They, they are able to invest in, in the economy. And so the, those two things are almost like somewhat, um, you know, confounding or they're, they're whatever they're. But, but okay. Think back to September 11th, 2001. Right. right. After that, I think Bush's approval ratings were the highest they'd been. Because yeah, but, people were so so it was a national crisis and everybody kind of tried to band together to figure out how to I don't know, in that case, um how to get the perpetrators. Yeah. But but it was this sort of moment where people came together, right? And so I think people tend to come together in moments of crisis. Okay, so you're going to take, you think that it's had, if anything, a n no effect, but you just think Trump, will, you would take even money on Trump to be president again. 
I would right now. I mean, I know the betting markets had Trump probably around like 62, 63% before all this happened. And then he went down to around 50%, I believe. And now he's back up a little bit. But I mean, I think, I think Biden has made himself look a lot worse in the last few weeks. I mean, he just seems completely incoherent when you watch him speak. And maybe I'm only, I'm not watching Jeff. I'm not watching his entire stump speeches or entire interviews, but I'm seeing the clips and they are pretty bad. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like he, he, he mistook his wife for his sister. And I mean, I'm, I think the general, the general perception is that he seems a little off. Like I'm like worried about his mental health. Yeah. You're not the first person I've heard say that. Um, that's left leaning. Okay. And then finally on the sports betting market itself, what do you think the impact of coronavirus will be? Um, you know, we, we had obviously Cam and Jack on um, at the top of this podcast to talk about this specifically. Um, but do you see, like, how are you going to approach when, when games start again? Okay, let's assume, I guess, let's assume that there is an NFL season this year, that it starts one day late at least. So you, <laughs> so, so you make your $1,000. Um, but let's just say, let's just say it starts um, – Let's just say it starts like on time. It starts on time. And let's say it starts on time with fans. This is all very unlikely in my mind, but let's say it starts on time with fans in the stadium. Are you going to adjust your models at all? Um, And really at the core, this is the key, right? Like everything you hear because of how behemoth football is, that sports betting will be fine um, as an industry if there is a football season. If there is no football season or it is delayed or there's some weirdness to it, the sports betting, the sports betting industry may have some trouble. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Football is their primary breadwinner. So do you, will, do will you I think adjust my models? If do you think you'll approach any modeling different, differently um, because of everything that's happened? And, um, I mean, all the it d- so it all depends on what I know about those unknowns when the season starts. I mean, I think that, has there been a preseason? Has there been is, training you know, camp? Like, gonna, you know who you're going to lean on a lot is our bearded friend. Preston? Because our bearded friend is going to know a lot of information about all these different things that are happening in different camps and whatnot. That's true. You're right. If, if With less time to prepare, I think they're, you know, inf- the value of that sort of qualitative information might be a little, a little bit greater. So, I mean, I do, I do think um, – I mean, I think we'll have a football season, but I think the, the I think the NCAA season is interesting too. I mean, I I read the other day that they're considering having the, the NCAA football. I think through college football, um, they're considering having it in the spring of 2021, which would be interesting. Yeah, but I I take that. I'm assuming that's like Brett McMurphy's tweet. Yeah, <laughs> was it? Yeah, Brett McMurphy's yeah. a good guy. He's a really good guy, but I don't know how much he really knows right there's there's oh. all this all okay this wait wait he's he i i he's the guy that made me understand what an insider really is when no, back no, when i was at espn he told insider, me he told me this guy this quarterback was going to be missing this game it was maybe like i, I, I don't remember if this is the day of the game and i asked how he knew and he said the player's mom just texted him and i was like Man. yeah and then you know 15 minutes later the story broke and... so okay so um i think that's good for now we've we've covered a lot we were much more civil with each other than we were in the last one. I do feel like we should run that first one at like almost at the end of this for people that want to like listen 
to what it originally sounded like before we get <laughs> things back. And then we can have like two hours of content if people want to want to reel it in. But um, that's our pod. I think we will. We'll tell Matt to throw the the original conversation. Oh no! Together. I don't uh, like the original yeah. conversation. My it's audio a, is really bad too for some a, reason. I'm learning. Right. About, I'm learning more things about the microphone and the gain. If you made if you made it through this whole thing, thank you a lot because I think we all care about this subject a lot. We are not even close to experts on it, um, but hopefully can help spur some conversation around this that can help people become more informed or can help people come up with their own opinions. Um, and, and that's sort of the whole goal of, of attacking this. It, it's hard to talk just about sports right now in this time. One, because there's really no sports going on, but two, because it does seem like you're, you're missing the forest for the trees when you don't actually talk about, or, or you're, you're, uh, you're ignoring the elephant in the room. Before we go, did you, ha- how did you have a bet on the Jonathan Bales pushup challenge? I did. Did you have the over? I had over, yeah. Nice. Like me some, too. Some nice person on Twitter reached out to me and I think I don't know if I'll he can if he's listening to this, he can tell me whether it's okay if I mention his name or not in the next episode and I'll give him a little shout out for it. But he reached out to me on Twitter and told told me that he wanted the under, heard that I wanted the over. We we um bet it and um you know, he was gracious and nice and said something like if i lose that's just my entertainment that's my my payback to you for all the entertainment you brought me from bet the process and bringing down the house so um i thought that was nice 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 matt matt david so i had a few twitter bets for 100 bucks each and then matt david out proposed uh three thousand dollars to the charity of the winner's choice so he had the under he had the under, I had the over. Although he's, he's, like, it, he's sharp on the under. He's like, he's like, I know it's probably not. Dude, Bales, plus EV. Bales, Bales is a monster. I know. I mean, I think it was just, that was, it was that, about doing something good. I think that was that. effing, that was effing crazy. It was, I, I still don't think his, I mean, Hey, did you pick your charity yet? Yeah. Oh, okay. Do you have, do you have a suggestion? Yeah. Front, frontline foods, frontline okay. foods is this thing that a friend of mine, um, had just, had, has just started. Um, as part of this pandemic where basically he partners with restaurants um, to provide meals to healthcare workers, to the front frontline healthcare workers. And so the donations go to fund the restaurants cooking the food and packaging the food. And then they get delivered to the, the hospital workers. The hospital workers get good meals. So you're supporting the restaurant community and you're giving the healthcare workers. And it's basically been like franchised in like six or seven wow. cities already. He's raised over seven hundred thousand dollars, I think. To not profit seven hundred thousand. Yeah. So I would, if find foods, if any of you guys um, are looking for some charities to donate to in this time. So, so, so the chair, the charity I donated to is actually food related as well. It's called Plant Dining Partnerships. Um, it started by uh, a close childhood friend of mine who, um, and it's basically looking to, uh, it's providing resources to sort of increase plant-based dining options in lower income communities because a lot of the time, I mean, I think it's a big problem. You don't really have healthy um, options in both fast foods and in, in, in kind of these, these quote food deserts, right? I think there's a food desert and the food swamp, but I'm not sure the difference, but anyway, um, I believe in it though. Okay. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you guys again in, um, all right. Well, that was Captain Jack. And as always, he was insightful. And as always, uh, Rufus and I bickered like a married couple or soon to be divorced couple. 
Um, we're going to bake her a little bit. You seem to be divorced. This is news. Who are you leaving me for, Jeffy? No, I'm saying that was the analogy of uh, the couple arguing what we sound like. As a, I mean, you're stuck with me. With this. We're, like, we're like a married couple that's been stuck quarantined together for too long. Huh? <laughs> so you and I had this sort of spirited conversation um, where we were talking a bit about COVID and, and why some of your tweets have been driving me crazy about COVID and, and just generally like the point of view that you've taken on it. Right. Um, what is my point of view on it? I'm not sure. Like I've kind of gone back and forth between being bullish and bearish and I feel like I'm, I'm not, I don't really have a strong opinion. Like you've been very, you've been very on what I would consider you'd be very generally unmeasured in what you say and what you do. And you've kind of just been flying off the cuff. Um, and I think that that's one of the most difficult things about, COVID is that we really don't know anything about it. Um, and, and, you know, yesterday I tweeted out about um, modeling it and you sent me the 538 article on it. Um, you know, it, it's almost an impossible thing to, to model correctly um, because of the fact that, you know, the, the data is non-stationary and it's inapplicable and, it, and it's just, you know, some of it's probably just plain wrong in terms of like what you're using. So, you know, and, and then someone said, well, that does that mean we shouldn't try to model it? And no, of course we should try to model. It. I mean, the whole point is, is being data driven, but like at the core, we need to really start from the beginning, which is like trying to fix the data problem. Um, but how are, how are we going to fix the data problem? I mean, the data quality well, I don't, I mean, worldwide, I don't know the there's a lot Dave, we, I mean, I, look, I don't know if you've seen the stuff that Dave Friedberg is trying to do. The guy that started Climate Corp then sold that to Monsanto He's been actually, you know, collecting and buying and getting the serum tests and he's been doing like random population, you know, studies about the serum test compared to the PCR test and all of that type of stuff. And he's, he is trying to fix the data problem. Now, the, what is that the guy, about, I mean, cause the, the, there's, what was the whole thing in Telluride where they were going to test the entire population of Telluride for antibodies? No, this isn't, that's something this different. Isn't that, this isn't that. I mean, this is a guy that's trying to do this in San Francisco and, he's smart. I mean, and he's, he knows what he's doing and, and he does, I think he is approaching this a bit with this mindset, like, Hey, we are now damaging the economy in a way that, you know, is, could have really long-term impact. And are we sure we should be doing this to the extent that we are? I think your point when you made that tweet about, you know, your personal sort of idea of, of, you know, testing and, whether you should be allowed to go back out or whether, you know, your friend should be allowed to go back, like all that kind of stuff. The reason that that frustrated me was you were basically saying we need to be even more cautious um, in light of the fact that we don't know things. And that's, that is actually like assuming that, you know, you have an objective function that you completely understand, which is around, you know, saving as many lives from COVID as possible. Um, where, you know, the reality is like any actions that we take are still actions, even if they are the safest actions that we think they are, they could still be the wrong actions. That's true. I mean, but right now, I mean, I think the perspective of most of the world leaders and, and certainly our leaders is basically that we'd rather uh, have a, a good, you know, a bad economic outcome than a bad public health outcome. And right. And and so that's why we're taking but these that, measures but, that we're but taking so, but because again, we so, value so bad, a human life at a certain. What, what is what is bad? What does bad mean? Is bad any one incremental death that we could have prevented? 
from COVID directly at the expense of every single, you know, economical, like economic, you know, and I, listen, I'm sheltered at home. I'm a hundred percent believer in us doing our part and whatnot, but I also, I also still have, I'm making income, right? I'm also still, you know, like I'm not going to come out of this financially in trouble like some other people might. And so it's really easy for me to, to be and live a pristine life and, and to be like, Oh, everything's okay. When it isn't, you know, stopping my livelihood. And so, you know, it's like some personal nuisances, but, but that's certainly not the situation that a lot of other people are in. So it's easy for me to take this point of view, but my point, but again, like the point is when you think about where we are with this, even, even just this idea that like, you know, like I am obviously not a fan of Trump, but there were a lot of people that from the first day that a, you know, COVID positive test happened here to when we actually started taking this seriously, which was probably the moment that Rudy Gobert tested positive. That was the first time that people really started taking this seriously in this country. That was a pretty big um, amount of time. That was almost two months, right? It was January 21st to like March, whatever, 8th or 9th or 10th or whatever it was. So that's, you know, that's a fair amount of time. And we all did that. Now, we, may, we probably should, should hold the president of the United States to a slightly higher bar than we do because he's responsible for a bit more than we are in our own personal views. But the, well, the idea that like everyone took this thing seriously right away, it, no one, a lot of people didn't. Well, Trump had an incentive and, and, you know, Republican lawmakers, I would say in general, had an incentive to minimize this because they wanted to, they didn't want to stoke fear in the markets. Um, and obviously... This is but again, you know, like it's the middle of a, to, Trump, like, Trump's in the middle of a re-election it's, campaign. It's, it's it's fine, but like the fact of the matter is, you and I went to a crowded, you know, yeah. international conference, you know, in March in the beginning of March, right? Yeah, and Jeff, yeah. and you know what? Google there was a something at the at Google at MIT um, scheduled for that Thursday that got canceled. Um, there was sort of a pre-conference. Um, thing and and that was canceled because of google's policy and yet the the conference went ahead as scheduled right which and in retrospect was it's, it's, not it's the right almost hypo- it's hypocritical for us to some degree to sit in our high horse about people not taking covid seriously when we were a, definitely a part of the problem right we, right. we were attendees at the conference and i and i was a huge part of the problem obviously because i think i gave it to people there probably um without knowing and you know but you know, the conference was happening in a way I kind of was like, you know, the conference is happening. So I'm going to go. Right. And, but that's the reality is how different is that than you, you know, like there, there are personal incentives that you um, put ahead of larger incentives of the world. Right. And, you know, I, I'm just saying we, we, we've all made these mistakes up till now. And, and there's a, there's a continue, there's going to be, at some point, there's going to be like a, this isn't binary. This is some sort of continuum of what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. And I, I don't, I'm not purporting that I have the answer to this, right? So, like I don't have the answer. So Jeff, you were a speaker. Like it's a lot yes. harder for you to I not try, attend. I try not to spit a lot. What? You're right. You were a speaker at the conference. Right. It would be a lot harder for you to, to not attend. But at the same time, if you said, hey, I don't think we should be having this conference. I'm not going to come. 
you know, maybe that could have, you know, you're, you're an influencer. Maybe that would have had some I mean, influence that's a, on the That's decision. a nice thing to say, but if I had canceled from the Sloan conference, it, they would have just found another moderator. It would have been, it wouldn't have been that, that big a deal for the actual conference itself. But yeah, I mean, I did, there is a, there is a responsibility potentially that I had. I was actually, I think the week before I was with someone from GitHub and they were talking about speaking at an event you know, in like a week or something like that. And whether they had a responsibility to, you know, not speak at it as like a leader in the whole, like stay at home and, and don't, don't do big. Um, and, and so like, maybe I should have felt a little bit more of a sense of responsibility as a speaker. And again, like knowing that you were COVID positive, knowing how irresponsible we were in our interactions um, and knowing how much my actions could have actually influenced, you know, where I live in California. Like, it's just, it's, it's crazy to think about. And, uh, you know, beyond this anecdotal stuff, I think that the, the, the reality we, that we were talking about with modeling, which is sort of what we are as a, as a, you know, as a podcast, we talk about this kind of stuff. I, I think again that the problem is is at the core. Now I don't. You haven't really watched. You haven't really been watching the press conferences, have you? No, I was I was up in Maine for the last like five days, just yeah, so the TV. The the press conferences are are interesting. I've been tweeting out prop bets on all of them. The last three episodes, just kind of fun or episodes. The last three. Uh, oh God! Because because they're they're live television. And they are entertaining and painful at the same time. And, you know, one of the things that, that was happening yesterday on the press conference is that Dr. Burks was showing all of these different models that like showed, you know, how many deaths were going to happen. And I think Trump's positioning right now is going to use like the high end bound of the models to claim victory no matter what ends up happening, right? Because we're probably not going to get to 2 million deaths in the U.S. Let's hope that, right? And that's sort of the high-end number that people have quoted. So he's going to be able to use that as a way to say he's prevented a lot of deaths. The, the, and then what ended up happening when they showed all these models is that a lot of the reporters just started to try to get into them. They're like, so are you saying that 100,000 would be a good result? Like, what if we did this? Would, what would the model say? And Fauci, to his credit, was basically like, listen, these are fucking models and they're only as good as their assumptions are. And reality is like, you know, like we don't really know. And we're trying to prevent as many deaths as we can. And I think the biggest thing, the reason why I don't think we're going to reach the upper bound is every week or every day, we're getting better and better at treating this. And the more that we're able to treat this, regardless of the social distancing piece, the way that we're able to treat this is in the way that we're able to like, actually like our, like our private sector and our medical community, they deserve all the credit in the world because they're crushing it right now and trying to get us, get us out of this. Right. And, and if, if the least that we can do is, you know, not go to work or not, you know, have parties and whatnot, that, that's the least that we can do given all that they're doing to try to save lives. I agree, Jeff. I mean, I've been, yeah, I was an early adopter of the quarantine. Yeah. So my, my point is, and, and, you know, like this ended up being not quite what we were talking about before, which is just me like talking on and on about COVID and my point of view. 
I think that this is one of the places where like the data and, and what's interesting about this is like, I think we can talk about what the future of journalism is, right? Because ultimately this has become like a really interesting data journalism like issue where everyone's trying to use data in their journalism. And because the data is so shitty, they're basically like leading with whatever their point of view, and what their point is, and then finding the right data that supports that versus the other way around. Wait, hold on. We never, I feel like we never finished up on that original topic of, of you saying that what I tweeted out was, I don't know if irresponsible is your word, but it pissed you off, you know, basically saying that maybe the two weeks is not enough given, you know, some people well, okay, retesting so, and so stuff like I that. Think, I think you started pissing me off right when you first came out and you said I was COVID positive. I haven't been confirmed yet. But blah blah blah. Well, and then I was like, confirmed, but so you weren't. But you weren't confirmed yet when you decided to go on Twitter and tell everyone you were confirmed, right? Well, I, like, I, 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 look, my yeah, I was you yeah. confirmed, Rufus. You weren't, and I said you I wasn't you had confirmed. A very positive. high suspicion that you were, given all the circumstances. And I was living with someone but that was you COVID were not positive. Confirmed, so, right? You were right. not confirmed, and I tweeted so that. Why out. not wait until you're confirmed? If before you have your whole announcement, okay? I'll, t- I'll tell you what why. Is, I'll tell you why. I talked to people from from the that I talked to at this, like, I talked to people um, that I respect um, that basically said I had a responsibility to alert people given that I was at Sloan with all these people. And I, and I interacted with a lot of people that I did, that I don't know their phone numbers. I don't know their email addresses. I don't have a way to contact them. And I was basically you know, an argument was made to me that I had a responsibility to basically tweet, like alert everybody that I could, that I probably, you know, that there's a very high likelihood that I gave it to people at the conference. That's why. So if that was the sole motivation for doing that, then I think that was good, but that didn't, it did not to me come off that way. Right. And, and then why is that? I mean, I gave, I gave my basically the symptoms I had had, because I thought that was, I mean, I also do think that it's interesting to, when, when you see people say that, you know, they're positive in, in, in the symptoms they had, like, like the fact that I, I had the loss of taste thing and, you know, nobody really had been talking about that, but I, I thought it was, it was something that you I had on, noticed. You were, on the, you were on the cutting edge of the loss of taste thing. I agree with you. So, so, I mean, don't you think putting that information out there was uh, probably a good thing there? So, to, like, and you, you don't know how many people, like, DM'd me and basically said, hey, I've had these symptoms, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you, but. Right. But so that, that's my point, right? Which is right. that you were, but, a very un, you were a very unknowledgeable, uninformed human being now purporting, not on purpose, to be a COVID expert, right? Because you've had it. I and was not purporting to be an expert. I know, but like, you just have to think about it. It's just like, uh, it's just like when, you know, someone puts a, when some professional athlete makes a pick in a game, like he's purporting himself to be an expert and he's making a pick in a game. Like, and, and I was, just, I was being a data point. Well, okay. Now again, we don't have that many data points. Let, let's go back and look at, at all of the different sort of things that you said and did. And I would, go back and, and tell you why I didn't like what they were or how I would have worded them differently. It's, it's again, it's that level of you are an influencer, right? You have a lot of people that follow you on Twitter more than me now. I can't believe it, but yes, more than me. And you, um, you, have, you have a responsibility in what you tweet out there about things, right? Like, let's just say, and I know it was highly, highly, highly unlikely 
that you weren't COVID positive. After then I would have I would have tweeted out that I did that I, I know, didn't but, have it. But, uh, but but you would have had a day and a half of people like freaking out about it when they didn't necessarily need to be right and like in the same or in the same way that they needed to freaking be. out. Do you mean knowing to isolate and in quarantine and stuff? If they you know I but think that that's again like I think you're just, the you're propon- just assuming. So so do you think the best result of the imperial study that that made everyone you know, be Armageddon is, is that reporters just need to freak everyone out and need to scare the crap out of people so they don't go out? It's a good question. I, I read an article. I forget where well, you it just was. Told me that that, you just told me that that's what you think. Well, no, I, I mean, I think so on my little notes for this podcast, I actually wrote, um, where is it? Um, I said, do you think, do you think is the media trying to push a narrative to get it, to get people to behave responsibly and limit the spread? And should they be? So, I mean, that's what, this is about. And I think that personally, I think that if the cost of being cautious is low, then it's a no brainer that people should okay. you know, be more The other cautious. thing too, is you have to think about your own personal sort of financial situation. You're not going to live and die on two or three more months of no salary. You'll be fine. Right? right. And so there are people that are not in that same situation. There are people that are losing their entire businesses right now. There are people that have built like businesses that were based on cash that are just, and it's going to take them a long time to get back. Right. And so what does that, like, what does that I'm have just, to do I'm with saying, my well, announcement on Twitter? That? What does that have to what's do that? with me saying that I, I was presumed to be positive on Twitter? That's what I'm trying Again, to get I, I, I think that you have a responsibility to, you know, hold yourself to the highest level of scrutiny in terms of like what you're factually telling people. And I think one for you to come out with that admission, you know, before you knew for sure. Right. I mean, I was 99.5% positive. Okay. You said I'm confirmed. Your tweet was I'm confirmed positive. Was that true or not? No, that is false. My tweet was not, I was confirmed. I mean, I eventually tweeted I was confirmed positive afterwards, but but the original tweet was not that I was confirmed positive. What? what, Pull it up. You want to bet me? Yes, I will bet you. Let's go, go back and look at it. Let's look. Okay. Twitter. Are you looking right now? You probably I'm pulling it up. I'm pulling it up right now. Oh man. Twitter.com. I don't even, wait, you blocked me? Wait, <laughs> okay. Let's see what you said. Here we go. Puzzle finished. Other tweets. So I have coronavirus. I got tested Tuesday and I'm waiting my results, but someone I live with tested positive. You just said, I have coronavirus. I didn't say I confirmed tested positive. I, I didn't say confirmed tested positive. I, I said, wait, wait, I said I was tested and awaiting results. I said what, why I was why tested you, and awaiting you, results. Why, Rufus, why wouldn't you lead with, so I got tested for coronavirus because I suspect I have it. Instead, you led with, so I have coronavirus, which is not something you knew for sure at that moment. You knew pretty surely, but you didn't know for sure. I don't. I have to, if I'm, if I'm reading a headline, do you, would you give someone crap if they led with a headline that wasn't technically true and then you read in the article a little bit more and you're like, wait, that's not actually true. The headline that he led with is not true yet. If, if it wasn't true, then everything we know about coronavirus would have been incorrect. That's not true. And transmission of viruses and all that that's stuff. That's not and true. You said, you said this to me before. Like the, the point is that you, you don't understand why I'm saying, like if you don't understand why I have an issue with you leading with, so I have coronavirus. I mean, I, there wasn't a ton of thought into the wording. But you have to think about things more is my point. If you're going to go throw shit at other reporters and other people that tweet things, 
you should probably pay a little bit more attention to exactly what you tweet. Okay, but I still, I mean, I still don't understand the issue with this at all. But that's. But you don't. You don't. This is the like fact the that classic, I could. The fact that I. Rufus, this is the classic thing that we talk about with touts, right? And this is the classic thing that we talk about with the media, that words and accuracy matter at the highest level. And if you are inaccurate, like and and miss you like, you don't understand how that is a teeny bit misleading until you are you are proved positive. And I know your intention. Okay, okay, but my not, point you here. Had no, you had no negative intention for it. Like you just cleared up any intention you had, and it was a hundred percent positive. But if you are going to, and, and me included, if we are going to give people crap about details and about being correct a hundred percent of, like you know, being accurate. This is an example of one way that, that you had perfectly normal intentions and you just said it. I don't pay that much attention to what every word I write. Well, so why can't, you know, Jason McIntyre or someone else, why can't they just say the same thing? Clay, Travis, why can't they just say the same thing? Okay, so the other issue here was that, um, I mean, which I've talked to you in private about is obviously the fact that, like, I'm not the only one involved here and so I have to be careful with my words because of that. Well, that was the primary reason that I told you not to talk about it publicly. Right, and I didn't want to talk. Right, exactly. And so, but but I was. The, you know what? There there was probably a world where you could have gone to most people that you know that you talked to at that conference, and you know you could have said, "Hey, can you just spread the word to people that may have encountered me without actually going on Twitter?" Because there's a, was, there's a, there's a big delta pe- between reaching out to say thirty people and having them spread it to a few people, or reaching out to what do you have now? Two million followers to your two million followers? You done? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I'm look, look I was, I was, I talked to, to two people that I really respect that one of him is like a huge mentor to me in, in my life. And, and basically he said that I, I needed, it was my responsibility to let people know. And, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. Way. And, and, and I think, and I think it's fine. I, I'm, and again, it's not, I'm just, I, I'm more pointing out a nuance on, on something that you did that bothered me. And I'm okay. telling you why it bothered me. And it bothered me for a similar reason to why things like, you know, touts being inaccurate in terms of what their headline looks like that bothered them. Okay. So I'm sure well, I've done it. I feel it. like you're missing, What's I up? mean, I feel like, you know, you're missing the forest for the trees, but let's, let's, uh, can we move no, on, but you not, like, and then and we can go through a bunch of different things. It, it's a nitpick, right? But there, there was the tweet that you mentioned a while ago, which is that that you know people are making. And, and what's interesting is after I sent that tweet out to you, I became even more careful about anything that I tweeted out that was Corona related because I'm like, I don't want to do the same thing that I told Rufus that he shouldn't be doing because I do think that you were actually being a part of the problem when you tweeted out what you did, and then you made a point that everyone is like doing this wrong and no one knows and i was like well that's just what you did so which what are you talking about when i said the two-week self-quarantine yeah yeah it seems inadequate i mean that was here's the the whole point jeff 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 Jeff, the whole point here is that our data isn't great and we don't actually know everything about this virus and so i do think um and we have standards that people that we're using and someone responded to what i said here you know so i said that I didn't think the two-week self-quarantine for people that are who'd been exposed or were showing symptoms is adequate based on what I've seen with other, you know, people testing and, and retesting positive after um, after people a good amount person. of time. Okay, fair. But and That's then someone point, said, point. wait, wait, and someone said to me that 
it, it, it basically, the, the two weeks is to sort of see if you actually develop symptoms and become positive. It's not if you were positive. And so I was like, okay, that's good to know. My, my, my point to you, right, in all of this is that we're all victim to this whole idea of, you know, like the data here is terrible. We don't know anything. We create these narratives. We take the data we want to take uh, to make the narrative we want to make. And nobody knows. And, you know, at, you know when, when, when we go back to like this whole, like loop it back to the reason that, that, that you know, I've been fixated on this is because like the, the, the modeling community has probably never been so front and center in the world than it is right now. And this modeling is being built on the shittiest, shittiest data in a non-stationary environment where nobody really knows. So I, I have almost no doubt that modeling is going to get shit on after this because the model, it's just like when, it's just like when Nate, you know, said that Trump had a, what, 25% chance to win. And it was by far the highest prediction. But after it was done, people shit on Nate because he said Trump only had a 25% chance to win and Trump won. Right, like people don't understand these types of numbers and whatnot, and I'm just saying that you. And, and again, like I'm picking on you, obviously, and I don't really think anything you've done is wrong, from a standpoint of like, like ethically wrong or anything like that. But I'm just saying this is like such a such a high pressured, high packed, important um, thing for all of us that we just need to be really responsible about how we talk about it and how we report it. And at the core. The only way that we're really going to be able to fix this is by getting better data. And ultimately, like really the only way we're going to fix this is by finding a treatment. And all of this like conjecture around death rates and modeling and whatnot, it, it's, 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 almost like a, it's almost like a fool's errand and a bad thing. Okay, can we start actually talking about like the data and forecasting and data journalism and, you know, not bickering? Sure. But we are not being have accused more, of being I irresponsible. I have five more minutes to talk about it. I think it's, I, for me, I think it's an interesting thing because at the core, you know, people have talked about like journalism's just using the facts. And, you know, journalists are, the other thing that's, that's come out to me is journalists are the worst, are, are sort of like so ill-suited or ill-equipped to talk about data because so many of them are not data-driven, they're writers. Well, they're story, right, right. They, they deal in stories. They don't deal right. in, yeah, exactly, which sometimes, you know, they, they, they want to find data to tell a story, which kind of conflicts with being objective sometimes and, and, and seeing the entire picture, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, it'll be interesting as time goes on because, you know, everyone's latching onto data and, and wants models and wants predictions, and it's really thrown journalism kind of on its head to some degree because, you know, I was listening to Simmons talk about this the other day and he was actually talking about how, what he thinks is like, this has been a great return to journalism and a great rebirth for journalism. And I was like listening and I was like, man, I, I kind of feel like it's the opposite. I kind of feel like this is just highlighting everything that's kind of wrong with journalism because it's so partisan in the point of view people are taking the data that people are quoting. They're like cherry picking what they want to cherry pick and it's, it's anecdotal and whatnot. And, and, and I kind of think it's the opposite. So, yeah. So do you want to talk at all about the, um, about the actual forecasting given that we're, we are a, you know, no, we're a process I, I podcast. And I, I mean, think because, of, I, because I, I think that, I think that maybe I'll finish a sentence one of these days. 
No, but I, I think that we're, if we do that, we're going to be doing what, what I just said I didn't want us to do, right? No, I, don't, I want to talk about the process and the difficulties with it. We say the data is bad. Why is the data bad? I mean, do we trust China's data? Like, do we know I mean, the problem? The selection bias. San, the, and, the problem is that, like, we could spend literally another 45 minutes just talking about all the specific reasons why the data might be bad. Like, because there's so many reasons, right? Like the tests could be bad. These are all different tests. The populations and the sample size and the way that it's reported. Exactly. Uh, like there's just, you know, like China could be holding things back. Like there are so many reasons the data could be bad beyond like the actual like science behind it, right? Selection bias or whether it's not a, um, you know, a random population or like, exactly. you know, in the, so like there's just so many levels of how the data can be wrong. And then if you, t if you even talk about like mortality rates, assume that we're getting better treatment, treating this, that mortality rate is instable uh, or it's, it's a non-stationary because it's going to change because we're going to get better at treating it. And we still don't know. I mean, we don't know that everybody that died, died of coronavirus. Or, you know, I mean, there are people that are not tested that. My point to you is that like it's, it should be very obvious to any minor in statistics why this data is bad. And then to start building these grandiose models on this stuff, like it's just, it's just like, again, like you have to go back to the basics of this. This is like trying to forecast baseball games without having any real stats to do it. So, so here's a question for you then. Do you think we should not be, people should not be doing any sorts of forecasting as a result? No, that, was, that was what someone asked me on Twitter. And, and no, of course, we should still be trying. We should still be working to understand upper bounds and lower bounds and ranges. And we should constantly be reevaluating to see how we're doing. But we need to understand. And, and that's generally the problem with, the, with like stats people versus non-stats people or data people versus like the non-data people are just going to look at this and not understand like what Fauci said is right. Like you have to understand what all the assumptions are and what made this model, what it is. And so, you know, that, that in itself is, is, is the challenge with this. Yeah. And so, I mean, and I still think we can talk, you could talk through the modeling aspect and sort of, you know, I mean, if you model out anything, you have assumptions um, and which, you know, for some sort of future scenario. And if, the, if this happens, you know, if, if this is, if this is the mortality rate and this is the population of people that get infected, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, but, um, but I mean, I think the, what I think is, is people are, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but basically I think the, the these, these intervals are so large. Sometimes. Do you realize now why I interrupt you? I try well, to get. To well, you you, you interrupt me when I actually have a good point, and then no, suddenly I lose, and then I never am able no, to get back to it, and then you stop point, talking when I have nothing to say. Get to that point, and I'm better at articulating it to you because I know how your mind works, so I articulate it for you. So you just want all the credit for for all my points? No, is that I, it? I give you plenty of credit. You have a brilliant mind, and you have great ideas. Sometimes the words just don't come out of your mouth properly, so I try to help you get the words out of your mouth. Okay, Jeff. So are you bullish or bearish on this thing? What do you, I mean, what the, the data you, I mean, anyone dying that didn't need to die, you can't say you're bullish. No, on, right. on the future. Okay. Look on the future. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm relative I'm generally, to, I guess. I'm generally optimistic except for like places like Florida scare the crap out of me. So 
because that has a chance to create whole new outbreaks. So I know in California, we're generally being pretty good. I know in the Bay Area, we're generally being pretty good. And so far, the numbers have reflected that we're being pretty good. But when Trump is on that press conference looking at a bunch of different curves of states and people ask him a question about Florida and he says, well, they're doing fine. And he points to the curve, not understanding what the curve means. That is very bothersome. So that's at the core of what worries me. So has your opinion changed over the last two weeks since our last podcast on where things are going? Um, I'm probably more optimistic than I was two weeks ago. And part of that is because I feel like we are getting somewhat of a handle on it through social distancing. I think the fact that the president decided to, you know, shelter in place or whatever he calls it, you know, for another 30 days until the end of, end of April. Um, and I think the fact that there's some treatments that are starting to work. Yes. I'm, I'm more positive than I was two weeks ago. Um, but again, like then I think about somewhere like Florida and it scares the crap out of me. Yeah. At least it has high humidity, right? Imagine if Florida was dry. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are but the engines running off a leaded. 